Warning, there's no spoilers on this one. <laughs> so beware of nothing. <laughs> Why, hello, Tim. Well, we're back on Transmissions from the Forbidden Planet. Yes, we are. And man, this episode's going to be outrageous. <laughs> outrageous Fortune with Bette Midler and <laughs> Shelley Long. It doesn't get much better than that. Yeah. Woo. It's a Two girls dream team of off, comedy. Hanging off a cliff together. George Carlin and yeah. such. <laughs> I don't remember that part at all. Moving on. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) So give us a lowdown on what the topic's going to be today, Derek. Well. Balls in your park, buddy. Do you describe it? I will if you shut the fuck up. (laughs) Uh, Basically, today is going to be talking about how action over the course of many, many years of cinema has has become quite outrageous. (laughs) It certainly has. Yeah, and it's definitely started to lean a little heavy on uh, what we'll call set pieces. Set pieces, yeah. Yes. So that's basically the summary of what the show is going to be about. Yeah, yeah, right. Because, you know, as time goes along, you got to up the ante and everybody, you know, certain personalities are trying to out-action each other and then the ball gets rolling and... You can't just ha- have another chase down the street by the Keystone Cops. You <laughs> yeah. gotta, you gotta up that ante. The fast somehow. piano playing, <laughs> <laughs> right? And then, and then you add in the evolution of stunt choreography Stunts. and uh, special effects and all that stuff, and then it, it amps it up even more and gets. By the now we're in Fast and Furious ten or fifteen or whatever, and. Right. These guys are bulletproof and flying around on motorcycles or whatever. I just made that they're, part up, but... They're superheroes. No, yeah. they, I'm sure they are yeah. somewhere in there. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to that. Yeah. So that's kind of what we're going to be talking about. And um, enjoy. So... You mentioned set piece a minute ago. Mm-hmm. Explain it to me. What are you talking about? <laughs> set piece. Act as if I don't understand what you mean. <laughs> I'm gonna explain it to you like you are nine years old. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. Open your imagination. Shut your face. <laughs> <laughs> but my imagination is in my face. Well then, close them both. <laughs> All right. All right. So. This is something that I ripped off of the old interweb there, and it describes pretty much what I'm talking about here. Right. Set piece is a term used in movie land out there. Yeah. 
It says, set pieces are the kind of self-contained, high-octane moments you'll find in thriller, science fiction, and action-adventure movies. Right. They tend to form the basis of the kind of jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring moments that will make you sit on the edge of your seat, even though you paid for the whole goddamn thing. (laughs) Just like a dirt track circle race. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so... (laughs) Throw out me a couple of examples of what you would like to, like some basic examples of a set piece. So a set piece, let's take a movie that I personally find is one of those perfect kind of movies, Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Yeah, right. Okay. That whole last part of the movie Yeah. where the boat is sinking Yeah. and Quint has no longer been a part of the picture anymore. <laughs> Roy Scheider is on that boat. The shark, you don't know where it is. You see him coming. You, you know he's got that air tank in his mouth. Fire, you son of a... That's a set piece. Right. Right there. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a thing that the story has been building towards mm-hmm. naturally. Right. Gets to that, and then you have to have a big crescendo of something happening to make you go, oh, my God, is any, what's going to happen here? Yeah. That's what a set piece is, is basically acting like. Or another set piece and another movie I find particularly perfect is Back to the Future, that whole end scene where you know that the lightning is going to strike the clock tower at right. this time. and. The DeLorean stalling out. Yep. Maybe Marty won't make it. Maybe he will. There's a, something unplugged. Doc's got to plug that in. All of that stuff. Right. That's, That's a set. big set piece. Right. And so those are the things that movies, a lot of times in the older days would build towards right that was going to be your payoff at the end so you'd walk out after seeing a big set piece at the end of the film and then you'd be like wow and you'd be riding off the high of that set piece right yeah i confess it's a confusing lingo because uh, it makes you think like it's a piece of the set (laughs) right like oh shit the piece of the wall fell off can you glue that back up that's a set piece (laughs) can you put that set piece back up (laughs) yeah right move that lamp over there <laughs> on the set. I would imagine it's stating something along the terms of that's the action piece that we're going to set right here to really wow the audience. Yeah, there you go. That's a good way of describing it. There you go. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. When it comes to action movies in Hollywood, going all the way back to the old days, it was like what pretty much a lot of westerns and. Uh, uh, you know, some early sci-fi stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, um, a little bit of superhero and crime dramas and stuff like that. And, 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 and of course, like the Jimmy Cagney gangster stuff and all that, you know? Right, right. And a lot of the serials relied heavily on that stuff to get you back in. So the set piece at the end of serials back then would be the thing that's very climactic. They're about to go off the edge of the cliff. Oh, right. my God, tune in next week. Yeah, you know, you come back to see the payoff to that set piece that right. they showed you last week. There you week. go. Okay. Yeah. You know, we, we talk about you know, some of the genres I just mentioned, some of the big famous names back in the old days. We've talked about them before, of course, but we'll bring them up again. Yeah. Flash Gordon. <laughs> yeah, Buck Rogers, 
uh, Superman, Dick Tracy. Ooh, Tarzan was a big one. Mm-hmm. There was a ton of Tarzan movies. And Zorro, The Lone Ranger, and uh, I don't know what uh, Radio Ranch. I don't know what that is. Radio Ranch was a huge one, and that was Gene Autry. Oh, okay. So, yeah, he was one of the really famous cowboy guys back then, and that was a very famous serial that he used to star in back then. And he would participate in those set pieces, like I was just saying. Right. Wagon train's about to go off the edge. He's <laughs> jumped on the back. What will happen? Oh, shit. And then another one we talked about in our big giant kaiju movie show uh, was right. King Kong, right? And that hit in 1933. And, and uh, that really utilizes what you were talking about at the beginning of the show, which is it's using special effects right. to make those set pieces real. Right. And a lot of really cool in-camera trickery with the foreground, right. you know, to kind of create uh, this prehistoric atmosphere and all that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And... Um, you know, wowing the shit out of the audience, obviously, because uh, how do you make this little, this uh, whatever he's supposed to be, three-story tall gorilla move, you know, and all that stuff. Right. And, yeah. Yeah, so let's, I mean, even though we talked about it in our old show, and you can go listen to that, we talked about it pretty extensively in our old show, but just not even necessarily sticking with King Kong, but using it as a metaphor. Let's get in our little way back machine real quick. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine what it was like cinema being, I don't know, 20, 30 years old. Right. And most of it being serial stuff, just getting off of the edge of uh, sound. Right. And then seeing something like King Kong. Yeah. I mean, as, as youths, you and I saw stuff like, like uh, Jurassic Park and seeing how real that stuff was and how our minds were blown by that. And then I'm sure kids who go see those new Jurassic Park movies and stuff, they're probably like, wow, how is this stuff happening? You know? And so I just can't, I always think about that, like looking at that King Kong movie and thinking like, what was that? What would that have been like? Yeah. Back in 1933. And then of course, you know, the big, would we say that, you know, one of the most famous set pieces of all time would be, the climax where he's on the Empire State Building and the planes are flying oh, yeah. at him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's 90 years old and it's so ingrained in our culture and, you know. Right. And it's one of those things, like, if we look at King Kong, a, a lot of, I mean, I, I think you and I, growing up on movies, how we have, growing up through the Spielberg-Lucas years yeah. and stuff, where, where set pieces, as we were talking about, become a big thing and they just become more plentiful and more plentiful. We might rest our laurels on thinking that Oh, movies are just nothing but one big set piece right now. But if you look at King Kong, yeah. there is a lot of great set pieces in it. He's fighting that dinosaur on the island, mm-hmm. kidnapping the girl, going, and there's all the interaction between him and the girl, going to the big city, and then seeing him in the big city, escaping. Right. That's a lot of entertainment for a little, you know, back then, yeah, was... a very new process. Right. So, yeah, and then uh, time pushes on, right? They start adding another big genre, which becomes motivated by, I guess, World War II, becomes the war film. Right. Yeah, the stories that we're hearing from World War One and the yeah. fighter pilots, stuff like that, become such a big thing for a lot of people, especially in the industry, because it's so visual in your head when you're thinking about it. So people like... Howard Hughes and them are just like, man, I want to see that on film. And right. you've got the money to do it, makes that Hells Angels picture. And that another example of looking at that film, there's a ton of set pieces in that film. But it's all real planes and real lives being lost and yeah. shit like that. But it was whatever it takes to get this picture to the finish line. <laughs> that's, that's a mentality. Right, right. 
Yeah, and I, I think when you start thinking of early war films, you, you think probably John Wayne and stuff like that, you know? Right, right. Course. And then they're starting to get into color and all that stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah, I never really thought about it until now, but there isn't really a whole lot of war movies from the 1930s and early 40s. I was going to say in the early 40s when we're at war, some of that stuff is happening, what you're talking about with the Howard Hughes right. and all that. But, uh, you know, you're also thinking about the PCA era where it's like wartime guys, you know, and right. we're going to go off to war. Right. But you don't really so, get into the action film until probably, you know, well after the war's over, hardcore, right. you know, and it becomes a thing, like a regular occurrence. I, I'm going to say, what, was like late 40s, early 50s, would you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because that's when they start saying, like, you know, 45, the war is won, we did our thing, we come back, we're heroes, everyone's rah, rah, America, yeah, and right. everything like that. So you take that natural hero and you put that in a movie, right. that's going to bring people in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're riding on the high of melting 250,000 Japanese people. Right. No, and, that, and, th and that's one of the big action pieces that was back then was there was a whole thing about how Doolittle got that bomb yeah. taken there and how they almost ran out of gas. Right. That's a big film in the end of, like, I think, the uh, 40s. Right. And that film, I'm sure, would be your big set piece. Right, right, right. Right. Yeah, and you think about, you know, those how, how kind of whitewashed those early, like, 50s war movies kind of were. Oh, you yeah. know what I mean? They're just, uh, it's always, it's, it's kind of like an expression. And, and an evolution of the cowboy movie in a way where it's like yeah. the Americans are the you know guys with the white hats and even though it doesn't visually look that way it's symbolically played out like that and you know right go kill Tojo well, yeah what they're saying visually is white's good yeah. black's bad <laughs> yeah exactly right yeah and it's it's crazy when you look back on it like that but yeah and then you, if you look at it at the weird crux in the road that it was back then in the 50s it's like John Wayne's playing rah-rah war hero guy going over there to yeah. you know to, to kill you know all, you know, every, all the, the villainy that's over there but he's also at the same decade playing Genghis Khan <laughs> yeah. it makes no sense whatsoever he's also like I've mentioned in other episodes the only actor in Hollywood who did not actually actively <laughs> serve in World War II <laughs> right, yeah. but he becomes one of the biggest World War II uh, right. you know soldier guys in the movies because he's compensating for his lack right. of manhood he, he has a gigantic <laughs> chip on his shoulder yeah exactly <laughs> As we're talking about all of this, one really iconic storyteller that we all know his name and everything, Hitchcock, realized that the kind of movies he made, which were thrillers, yeah. needed something to hook people, even if a lot of it was going to be drama and talking and setups and right. suspicion and all of that. Yeah. If you have a strong hook, then people are going to walk out of the theater, even if they were bored by some of the other stuff, remembering that one thing. So in 1942, he does the movie called Saboteur. Right. And he has that big scene on the end where the guy goes over the side at the uh, torch of the Statue of Liberty right. and then does that fall. That was a huge, huge thing for him in that time. I believe that's what even ended up getting him a lot of contracts to other big prominent american film companies oh okay too because people walked out of that and that movie did really well based on that that they even that did so well ruining the surprise of that moment putting it on advertising posters and stuff yeah right right yeah and yeah i guess you would call the 
torch of the Statue of Liberty, a set piece there falling right. off of it, right? Yeah. I'm getting it, Derek. I get it. So, yeah, the 40s definitely were learning where to place these set pieces, how to really define them and stuff. And it's not surprising Hitchcock was one of those guys that really, hey, I can use this to right, right. my benefit here. Yeah, sort of like um, putting the formula down on paper for right. uh, what it, what makes a successful, suspenseful action set piece and all right. that, right? Yeah. So we can see different directors picking these things up. And so as we move on, also hinting back to our big monster movies and everything, you got a director that probably sees the brilliance of what King Kong does and then ends up making a film in 1954 for Japan. Right. Gojira. Right. And that comes out, and he's saying something in that. Yeah. He's saying something along with the devastation and set pieces in his movie. He's saying something with his set pieces. Right. I mean, one of the it becomes a trope pretty much, the whole right. set piece of the large monster destroying right. the um, cities. You know what I mean? Yeah. And trampling sure. on stuff. Yeah. King Kong set it up, really, like yeah. we talked about. And it became moderately popular with not a lot of big films capturing the same magic until the American version of Godzilla comes out in 56 and yeah. it really cements it. Right, Godzilla King of the Monsters, right? Isn't that what right. it's called? Yeah, but even so, there's some. I think because Godzilla is so much bigger than King Kong, you know, there's, right. there's something more about him trampling on... Oh, yeah. You know, that's the trope that becomes him trampling, like picking up the train car in his teeth and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, it becomes a thing for the next uh, several decades. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and then, of course, in the 50s, you have some of these genres are growing even more. You have the reintegration of sci-fi. It becomes really huge in the 1950s. And westerns are still going really strong in the 1950s. So, you know, all that jumping on the stagecoach kind of stuff and uh, as it's run away or, you know, or, you know. Tripping horses and killing and mutilating these poor animals to give you wows at the audience. Yeah, Right. But I I think one of the ones that really, as far as um, you want to talk about a set piece that's a bit mind-blowing from this era is uh, from the movie Ben-Hur, right? With the, yep. the famous chariot race, right? Where 56 <laughs> men died doing <laughs> this. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't see how they didn't. I don't know how many people died, but it, it right. you look at it and the, there's no animal codes or anything like that. Nope. You can tell that uh, oh. a lot of horses were hurt <laughs> doing this thing. <laughs> it's extremely dangerous. Yep. Yeah, you know, I've never actually seen the movie Ben-Hur. Okay. I'm not into all that over-heightened kind of hokey right. white people version of Middle Eastern stories, you know. Right, right. But, I mean, that chariot race is, is famous, right? We've always yeah. seen clips of it my whole life. And then you sent me a clip of it the other day to watch the whole thing. And I'm, I was just watching it with, like, mature eyes for the first time ever and just thinking, Jesus Christ, this is insanity. All the actor who tells me he does his own stunts is either an idiot or a liar. <laughs> there are, now, there are shots you can do. I'm a modestly competent horseman. And if we're, now of course the chariot is a different thing. It's not riding, it's driving. And the stunt coordinator or the second unit director are always people who know everything that need to be known about it. And I always say, can I do this shot? And they'll say, yeah, shouldn't do this one shot. I say, okay. And if they say, yeah, you can do this, then I do it. 
it's very simple insanity it's another one right like i i always do this especially apparently when I, as i'm getting older but i always look at these things that were made so long ago and think you take them for was... granted most of your life you're right. not really paying no. putting much attention to detail on it that's old stuff yeah it, right yeah uh, but when you really analyze it and see how many how much work is going into how big the sets are how complicated that that those shots are and stuff yeah you see all the things the, that have to go right to make it right. work. Yeah. Exactly. And, and then and I think cutting and, out and all the things that went wrong. Went horribly wrong, right. Yeah. And do you start I start projecting myself back again doing that it's this that evolutionary step that we saw with Jurassic from, Park, yeah, and the right. CG for the first Terminator time. Terminator two right. and all of that yeah. stuff going from prosthetics and stuff that we loved all our life and then seeing this whole new thing. You right. see this step up in stunt coordination and just the scope of it is amazing. Yeah, right. Yeah. And just the luck that had to be on their oh, side yeah. to get that scene completed, you know. And not even saying that, you know, I'm sh- I'm I'm betting 93 to 98 percent of that was not charleston heston but he was in there doing a good amount you can see his face and you're just like wow that's 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 impressive yeah (laughs) and you can't there's no uh there's no face swapping software back in the 1959 (laughs) so it was either him or a guy that looks sort of like him you know right a guy looks sort of like him and you know that that's the director back then saying we're gonna save this till the end of the shoot in case you die (laughs) that way we still have a picture right I'm an advertising man, not a red herring. I've got a job, a secretary, a mother, two ex-wives, and several bartenders dependent upon me. And I don't intend to disappoint them all by getting myself slightly killed. In the same year, we have another iconic film, too. And, and right. one of the most, as far as Hitchcockian um, suspense films, you know, he has his set pieces that stand out in history. Yep. And in 1959 was North by Northwest when Cary Grant's getting chased by the plane at the in that crossroads there. It's yep. one of the most famous scenes in ho- in Hollywood history, right? Right. So and uh, but, it created a lot of tension, I'm sure, in audiences oh, yeah. in that day, and and nobody's ever seen anything like that. And it kind of does look like it's Cary Grant getting buzzed, and maybe it is. Right. I don't know. Right. And then he goes a step further, even later at the end of the movie, doing the whole set piece Mount, Mount Rushmore. Rushmore. Right. Right. And it's really like I rewatch that movie because it's on HBO Max right now but I rewatched it probably about a month ago and it's crazy how you can even when you know there's processed shots in there they're standing against the process it still looks amazing just because of how rich the technicolor is right you can't really make out is that real is that not real yeah, you know, right. some of them you can right but it's really good stuff it's a really great sleight of hand and it's a great set piece right you can tell he's it, hitchcock thinking i did the statue of liberty what else is very <laughs> recognizable right right yeah teddy roosevelt's nose <laughs> <laughs> apparently the only performance that will satisfy you is when i play dead in your very next role, you'll be quite convincing, I assure you. Now we're going to go into the 60s, right? Because these last two films were 1959. We're going into the 60s, and that's when domination of Westerns and action films starts to wane and, and right. fades out. You know, right. when you when you think 1960s, you don't really think action film too much. Right. There might right. be, there's probably a few here or there that's slipping my mind at the moment, but... It's weird how you don't, because it ends up setting up a character known in literature yeah. that goes on to become iconic for action set pieces. I admire your luck. 
Mr. Bond. James Bond. I am Sean Connery, and I am the coolest guy, and I have an awesome voice. I'm gonna slap a bitch. <laughs> Don't you talk back to me, bitch. <laughs> We're just talking about Sean Connery. Shut your mouth. I can dig it. So, yeah, Dr. No, right? That one's probably, you know, it's the first James Bond movie, and it's not a super action-y movie. And well, you can tell that they don't have the formula done, right? Because it doesn't open with the whole yeah, end the of the first thing, mission going right. into the next. You know, they don't have that. And it, it doesn't even, it opens with this weird three blind mice opening. Yeah, that's it's right. Weird, yeah. yeah, it's a weird, you can tell that they're like, we like this property, but we don't know we want to spend too much money on it. So, right. you know, keep it short and keep yeah. it tight and so the last bit of the movie is really the huge set piece in, on the underwater right. Dr. No set and stuff like that. Right. And he, um, and Bond doesn't even have a fancy car. I think he's in like a Sunbeam Tiger or something like that. It's not nothing super cool. Not a lot of gadgets and all that stuff either. Right. You know. Right. It's just basic. I think they, it was probably picked. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure I remember reading somewhere where they picked that novel specifically because they're just like, we could do this one for cheap. Let's do this one. Right, right. Because there's not a lot of crazy shit happening. Right. Yeah. But you do get introduced, you know, to Sean Connery like we were just singing yep. about. And, uh, yeah. And you get that theme. Yeah, you get that th- <laughs> the, the words to that famous song that you never <laughs> knew existed. Um, but, you know, the king of fucking swagger in the 60s. You know what I'm saying? Oh, shit. Yeah. That dude was just born with oozing 60s cool. You know, he's like the personification, the real life Don Draper, you know. Yeah. But with uh, a lot more, even more charisma, you know, and because... And, uh, you know, Draper wasn't a happy, smiley kind of guy. <laughs> right, right. You know, whereas Sean Connery's like smirking at you the whole fucking time. He's smirking time. at you yeah. the whole time. He's like, you know, I'm better than you, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're one of the most beautiful girls I've ever seen. Thank you. But I think my mouth is too big. No, it's the right size. For me, that is. So, yeah, he he, t- he took a character that was already iconic on the page, brought right. it to the screen. And I think off of his charisma alone yeah. and the, some of the cool little things they did in the movie. But I think mainly his charisma. he sold that part and made people go, I like this guy. Right. I want to see what he's going to do next. Right. So we, we can't really say Dr. No is like this outstanding action film or anything. But it, it, it introduces right. a character that ends up being the longest running, <laughs> you know, uh, right. action genre uh, going you know and several iterations of him later and right. some of the craziest this series goes off you want to talk about set pieces going off the rails oh yeah especially by the Pierce Brosnan years and all that stuff it's well, just that's that thing in this it's weird how wonky yeah though so th- this thing starts out as trying probably out of practicality doing everything as real as they can yeah. and then exaggerating here and there and then the special effects just completely take off right. and Roger Moore years and yeah. stuff they try to tame it back down a little bit and it just blows back up again with special effects because right. you just want that character to be larger than life right. and so it, it, it's weird the give and pull right. of that character right. but uh, it does introduce a lot of like really record breaking stunts that they do on this thing and creating big set pieces to make people not go see it oh wow that was cool but go back and see it over and over and over again 
yeah, we'll, we'll we'll talk more about him as we go through the years here. We just we don't want right. to spend blow our whole James Bond wad right now. So then uh, uh, one of the other cool things within the 60s period that happens is this foreign film becomes known in America by mostly Hollywood elites mm -hmm. and then it spreads through art house stuff right. and then it starts spreading to regular culture throughout the 60s and that's Yojimbo. Right. And this thing is so influential on so many levels, on so many aspects of Hollywood movies right. and, and, and action and stuff over the years. It's crazy. Right. Yeah. It's Akira Kurosawa. Yeah. Within the shortest amount of time of its release, it influences one of the coolest Westerns ever. I feel has ever been made. Right. I got to tell you before you hire me, I don't work cheap. Or Western characters, I Western guess. Western characters, say. yeah, because it's, it's yeah. the Dollars Trilogy, and we've talked about him a few times before, but it's the man with no name and Clint Eastwood and Sergio Leone, the Italian director right. who filmed Westerns that took place in Southwest America but were filmed <laughs> in Spain. <laughs> he took a dying genre yeah. and then boosted it back, back up, up again. again. Yeah, he totally did. Well, and and that ha that gave room for uh, you know the Americans to maybe make a cool a couple cool westerns again. And so yep. then you have Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid come out in the yep. late sixties. Yeah, yep. and, and the uh, same year in '69, the Wild Bunch. Sam Yep, Sam Peckinpah is just like, I'm going to show you what real violence is. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> you guys didn't get what I was trying to say. Yeah, exactly. Right. And both of those, you look at them, Butch and Sundance definitely has a more playful yeah. set pieces in it. Yeah, it's, really about, cool. it's about the chemistry between yeah. Paul Newman and Robert Redford. And uh, right. yeah, it's a funny movie. Yeah. It's fun, and it's there's a lot of little set pieces that build into a big one at the end. And then Wild Bunch is one of those things that starts with a big set piece, yeah. and it ends with a big set piece. Right. There's a there's a good one in the middle there, but not as big as the one at the beginning and the end. And I think that is something that, again, you watch that movie. There are some things, and for me anyway, I, I don't consider it a perfect movie like a lot of people do, but I think that it is one of those things that starts out great and ends so great that when you when you finish watching it, you're like, man, that was crazy, that movie. <laughs> gentlemen, gentlemen, please, gentlemen, please. We are about to do a job in uh, Italy. Now, it's a very difficult job, and... The only way to get through it is we all work together as a team. And that means you do everything I say. But then also in the late 60s, you got the Italian job. Right, exactly. right. Michael Caine. And this is an important one, too, because there have been car chases mm -hmm. in movies as action pieces, of course, all the way back, like I said, to the Keystone Cops and Buster Keaton and all of the stuff that they used to do on that stuff. But when you get into the Italian job, this is one of those weird, obscure uh, foreign films that broke through mm -hmm. to America. Right. And, pe and people saw that. Apparently, big elite people in Hollywood saw that. Mm -hmm. And not that the Italian job is the first of these. The big gun, of course, is Bullet, but we'll yeah. get to that in a minute. The reason I mentioned Italian job first is because I think this gave some popularity to making the chase scene playful mm -hmm. and fun to watch, whereas Bullet is very serious. But moving on to Bullet. So then you end up having 
one of the most cool, <laughs> most uh, sought-after car chases in movie history. Yep. I mean, and you know, you watch it by today's standards, and maybe it doesn't seem quite as it. it yeah. It's cool to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Being no, a Ford cool. guy and having owned several Mustangs in my life. Right. Uh, and Steve McQueen, Captain Cool's driving a Mustang, right? It's definitely at the top of a lot of lists. Anytime you look up car chases, it's on the top of a lot of lists. It's only those people who start getting nitpicky about the hubcap came off there, and then all of a sudden it's but you know that kind of shit. Yeah, yeah, up. yeah. Or the, it's, you know? it's crashed in one cor- one side, right. and then it's not crashed in the next scene. Right. Yeah, yeah. Crumpled up. No, but it's a it's a '68 Charger versus a '68 Mustang GT fastback. It's funny too because those first generation Mustangs were famous for what we call understeering, which is when if you come into a a corner too fast and you turn the wheels and the car doesn't want to turn, it overloads the front wheels and it ends up going straight. Man, that that movie is a prime example. There's a (laughs) like three or four scenes. There's a scene. Really, really, it understeers so bad he has to stop, and then you see him look over his shoulder, and he's backing up and puts it back in gear and goes straight because he was not going to make that corner. <laughs> and uh, whereas the Charger is a little more known for its oversteer, you know what I mean, which is where the back comes out when you go around, like more of a drifting style. Right. Pretty cool though. It's it's great. It's long. Right. Uh, I feel like that's really the only set piece in the whole movie. <laughs> no, it is. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know this. I don't know anything about the making of Bullet or anything like that. I personally really like the film, but it's one of those that you have to. You're learning as he learns as you go along. So right. if you don't like that kind of movie, you're not gonna like right. this movie. But I would not be surprised if they filmed it showed it and they were like we need something because this everyone's bored yeah right and then put in that that big set piece of, yeah of it's the it's chase. like t- well, 10 minutes long that's that chase yeah, yeah. and they're right. go- going through san francisco of course which has those you know as we've seen in the ken block years and all that stuff there's this crazy jumps or that tesla yep. that goes flying through the air in san francisco right. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. well you know steve mcqueen was doing that shit back in 1968 you know right here's the things that people pick on the Charger loses like seven hubcaps throughout the scene. Right. And there's only right. four hubcaps per car. <laughs> right. So, uh, and the other funny thing, too, is when you watch it, the same white Beetle shows up parked on the side of the road. Right. Uh, it's the same white, like, 68 Beetle. And, it, you know, they have to keep moving it around, you know, for their – it's one of their set cars, you know. So people right. tend to watch. That's those are the things that people are nitpicking about. Those are the nitpicky about. things, yes. like I say, you know. That happens in I, every movie if you pay attention. Yeah. I, I think I think that if you're watching the movie just to watch it, that's yeah. those things that repetitive watchers right. go back and they go, yeah. oh, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, shithead, when's the last time you picked your feet? Huh? What's he talking about? I've got a man in Poughkeepsie who wants to talk to you. You ever been to Poughkeepsie? Huh? Have you ever been to Poughkeepsie? Hey, man, come on, give me a break. Hey, I don't know what you're talking about. It. Let me hear you say it. Come on. Have you ever been to Poughkeepsie? You've been to Poughkeepsie, haven't you? As we're going into the 70s and, you know, we talked about it in an, a couple, like our anti-heroes episode, how the, the late 60s was kind of the birth of movies getting dark. Plus with the change in the uh, the coding versus rating and all that stuff. Right. Which we talked about in another episode. Right. That kind of lends to these kind of gritty, edgy movies. And one of the more famous ones from the early 70s is uh, is The French Connection with uh, Gene Hackman, right? And yeah. uh, by Will- William Friedkin. Yeah. Crazy, man. That set piece in this movie with him chasing that train down, trying yeah. to get that guy because he knows he's on scene. that train. It's crazy. And, 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 you know, William Freakin, he talks about it in the... Even Gene Hackman does. He has a commentary for that. Gene Hackman's not real known for doing a lot of commentaries or talking about movies. Very, right. He loves that movie. 
And they both do commentaries for that thing, and they both talk about how, well, you know. This is actual traffic. These are cars that have no idea a guy's coming at them at 90 miles an hour. I had no reservations about doing it then because I was a callow, heedless youth, but I wouldn't do anything like this now. They would turn the camera on, and I would just go as hard as I could go down the streets of Brooklyn uh, without killing anyone. It was got to be pretty hairy at times. But we were stealing that footage. There was no doubt about that. And somebody came out of their house and got in a car to go to work and drove right into the uh, side of me and put me into a big steel pillar. Um, everybody was okay, but uh, it was kind of typical of what was going on. Yeah, and that's another one of those kind of like the North by Northwest plane yeah. dive thing. You know, that that uh, him in the car underneath the rail there, that's one of the right. more famous Hollywood scenes, you know oh, what I man. mean? Oh, man, right. And that's one of those things, like I keep harping on and everything, you go see French Connection. Yeah. Maybe you're not connecting with every scene or something like that, but when you're walking out of that theater after seeing it, you're like, God damn right, that right, chase. Right. Yeah, and the whole thing is it's based on a true story, but I think it's pretty grossly exaggerated and all that, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, Popeye the, Doyle's yeah, a real cop, that, you know right. what I mean, who wrote a book or whatever, and he kind of embellished his story, I think. Right. So, but it's a cool, yeah, it's a very, you know, famous early 70s action film. Right. And then, but that leads into... You know, we're, we were just talking about the man with no name. Right. Now he has a name. Yeah. And his name is Dirty Harry. <laughs> <laughs> so Clint Eastwood gets rid of the poncho for a suit and a big fucking 44 Magnum and uh, right. starts chasing down rapists and killers. I know what you're thinking, punk. You're thinking, did he fire six shots or only five? Now, to tell you the truth, I forgot myself and all this excitement. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and will blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself the question, do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Same year. Yeah, same year, 71. Yeah, and and so this one, they're pretty much harping off of the what's going on in with Zodiac killings, right? Right. In this movie here, and, and yeah, because so that th- pretty much is wrapping up. As they don't know it's going to be wrapping up, but right. you know that's wrapping up in the early '70s where he just disappears. Right. Yeah. Right. They're playing on that whole idea of uh, right. what that guy is doing in real life right and so yeah and you got Clint Eastwood switching genres over here and saying I can be this rogue cop that does whatever he wants and you know fuck the law and everything and yeah and so uh, uh, this one has several set pieces again that people always know they always know the shootout the bank robbers and And it basically sets up the blossoming of his career because he had come back from Italy and done a a few of his own westerns here uh, you know to some success your wagon right (laughs) then there's that yeah I was thinking more like hang them high and and stuff like that I talk to the trees but they don't listen to me I talk to the stars But they never hear me But yeah, I did the Dirty Harry thing gets him some yeah, serious he, traction as, a, as an American superstar. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, Dirty Harry takes him from one level to the next level. Exactly. And, and Dirty Harry pretty much keeps him at that right. next level. Right, yeah. Yep. 
And then again in this same time period, just a year later, Bruce Lee. Yeah. Really starts hitting with Fists of Fury. And then the next year, Enter the Dragon is what sets him off in America. Right, right. And he'd been toiling in America for so exactly, long in yeah. the 60s. He was on the Green Hornet TV show. and Right. But he, you know, America wouldn't quite let him, didn't want him to be a leading man or anything like right. that. So he had to go back to Hong Kong to become a leading man. Gain right. some success with his films there. Those films find an audience here in America enough right. that so that he can finance Enter the Dragon as an American-made kung fu film. <laughs> a star is born, right? You know. Yep. It's so weird to see that movie at that time come in at that gritty period yeah. that's accepted with this hardcore fighting style going on and yeah. real stunts that look really dangerous and are really dangerous and it's not a, a step in for someone coming in to take the place of Gene Hackman so he doesn't get too hurt in some scene or something like this is all the real people that you're watching right. well they're taking a lot of that uh, trying to adopt a lot of that Hong Kong theater aspect of filmmaking right into you know American filmmaking but Going back to the underlying tone or theme here, we're talking about a set piece. You want to talk about one of the most famous set pieces. It's still influencing movies today with the yep. John Wick films and all that stuff. Enter the Dragons and set piece in the with the mirrored hall thing is one of the most yep. famous, iconic set pieces of all time. And sets up a really cool action piece there of that chase between the guy with the Freddy Krueger claw, you know, yeah. <laughs> hiding yeah. in the, the, the big bad boss, you know, who's obviously not nearly the fighter that Bruce Lee right. is, so he has to use that weapon and all that, yeah. And the right. advantage of the mirrored halls to, to try and tame the beast somehow, you know? Right. And it's a really cool, visceral way of not just giving you a fight in a warehouse. Right. Or a fight outside. Right. It gives you something really cool to surround this cool stuff happening in the fight, but you also have cool visuals on top of it. And on top of that, I bet it was a bitch to film because of all the mirrors. Yeah, right. So just a little side note on Enter the Dragon, we have two very small appearances by two amazing Hong Kong film stars, and that's uh, yep. Jackie Chan. Jackie yep. Chan is one of the guys who gets beaten up by, by the nunchucks when, when he's doing that famous nunchuck scene. And right. you'll see his face for half a second as his nose gets broken and he turns towards camera going, oh, <laughs> yeah. right? And then yeah. one of the one, in one of the outdoor tournament scenes, he has a one-on-one -on -one with Sammo Hung, who is yeah. Jackie Chan's kind of mentor, you know, uh, right. from the Peking Opera era. Right. And an amazing fucking martial artist, Sam Hung. Yep. So uh, that's just kind of a cool little side note. And we're going to get into, we're going to do our own little episode on, on Jackie Chan and, and those guys yeah. later later on. But I thought it would, we had to at least mention that those two guys oh, yeah. kind of get there. We'll mention them here briefly again as we get on. Yeah, as we go on further. But they, they get yeah. their kind of American film debut right here in Enter the yep. Dragon, you know. It's pretty awesome. Right. Especially seeing where he goes on to become but yeah how how the bruce lee influence here with this one movie influences just not even like ninja films that come out right it influences those too but other films that have nothing to do with, with martial Kung arts Fu. even yeah it, uh, yeah or martial arts yeah it, it, it influences in the style the swiftness of the fighting right. the camera movement everything right. it's yeah. amazing 
well, I mean, you look at the the Matrix is basically a, an ode to Hong Kong filmmaking, right? Right. And yeah. the reason that we even know about that is because of Bruce Lee and, and all of right. that stuff. Because after this time period, too, in the 70s becomes the flood of explosion of Hong Kong theater in America and all that. And, and, and like your, your weekend, you know, exploitation films and all that stuff they, where they're airing a lot, a lot of uh, uh, Hong Kong cinema in America. You know, yeah. To try and ride that way. Because obviously, you know, Bruce Lee doesn't live much longer past the success of Enter the Dragon. He was halfway filming Game of Death when he died. And so... Right. That movie got patchworked together in a oh, really man. horrible way. It's too horrible. bad because, you know, yeah. that's the famous one where he's wearing the yellow suit with the black stripes right. down the side and, and, and kind of makes him an icon. Right. But unfortunately, the way that movie is finished, you know, without yep. him being alive, it's 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 a bit of a travesty. But right. anyhow, uh, he helps set up the dojos coming across the... Uh, country all like the guy from uh napoleon dynamite right you know right 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 <laughs> those guys all over the all over the nation everywhere and every little strip ball in the country you know right thanks to the popular you think you're a tough guy come on up and <laughs> step on up <laughs> exactly so another thing that happens in 1972 is the poseidon adventure comes out and yeah. starts a string of, of disaster films disaster films and these yeah. disaster films are literally nothing more than look at all these stars we got to show you a big huge set piece right and that set piece could be a ship overturning right or an earthquake happening or an airplane falling from the sky or a towering inferno <laughs> or a towering inferno with yeah. a guy named bullet <laughs> yeah so many disaster films it's it's a little ridiculous yeah they become like the TV movies by the end of the 70s, you know? Yeah. Airport 777 and all the, you know, right. the, uh, uh, that's what airplanes making fun of, but there's other movies right. too, but... Uh, yeah, so so it starts in 72 with the Poseidon Adventure. And, that's and basically, though, you're adding to the genre, right? We, we, we talked about how um, war films didn't really come in until after World War II. Right. So then we're adding an, another genre here, which is the disaster film and action right. movies, right? It's basically someone in Hollywood saying, what if the whole movie was a set piece? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, that was something that was birthed and then kind of died out by the end of the 70s and then has reemerged itself with the Roland Emmerichs and the... Well, yeah, that's true, right. But, yeah. but also, I think you know parody has a way of doing that so that by you know oh, yeah. 1980 when airplane comes out and becomes a huge mass success you're right. laughing so hard at it that it's hard to take that mo kind of movie yeah. serious anymore from that yeah. point on you know right. what i mean because you're seeing how stupid they are right yeah and it's just one of those things that was so big at the time yeah. though especially after poseidon hit and was a gigantic hit that by the time you do the towering inferno you can throw so much fucking money at it you can get steve mcqueen who was the one of the biggest stars and also starring alongside him the other biggest star of the time paul newman, paul newman in that yeah. movie right and then it has a ship ton of other people in it it's just craziness isn't frank sinatra in that uh no it's the dancer guy fred astaire fred astaire is in that yeah fred wow astaire. bananas but uh, yeah, so anyway, all of that goes completely to the wayside when everything is turned on its heel and a little film in 1975 from an unknown director comes out 
called Steven Spielberg, and that's the movie Jaws. Yeah, right, right. $10,000 for me by myself. For that, you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. Yeah, which basically invents the summer blockbuster. Uh, right. From that point on, it becomes kind of the benchmark for when to release your big action set piece horror slash whatever right you release a movie that has these kind of set pieces at this time of year it's Mm -hmm. gonna make some bank basically yeah i think the idea being that because the kids are out of school they're gonna go see it again and again and all that stuff right so that's how they collect on big ticket sales by Rather than, you know, I think a lot of times big movies were released around Christmas time and all that because families are together. But right. whatever it is, the, the, the timing of Jaws coming out in the summer and it being, you know, it's set in the summer, too. So it made sense. It, it felt like right. the right, you know, it, it's like a, almost like a happy accident. Like, oh, why didn't we think of this? All the kids are oh, off. It was a total happy accident. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, Spielberg could have been ruined by this film. If yeah. It would have went any other way. Right. Yeah. So, and then one of the things that Spielberg even says, that big climactic end scene where he shoots the air tank that's in the shark's mouth. Right. He knew that was all bullshit. Right. And I think even people commented on him, and he said something along the lines of, it doesn't matter if it could happen or not. People are so tied up in the suspense by that moment. When it does happen, they're elated. Yeah. It doesn't right. matter how much sense yeah. it makes. It's like a, they're elated. It's a pressure relief, just like... Right. Popping a hole in a pressurized tank. It's <laughs> right, right, yeah. What probably would have really happened is the shark would have thrown through the air like a balloon with a knot untied. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, Steven Spielberg steps up to the plate and offs a home run. But right. then there's this other player behind him in 77 that comes along with this weird little space opera. Right, yeah. And uh, when when the executives before Star Wars was released in 1977, when they first saw it, I think they looked at each other and said, I have a bad feeling about this. <laughs> yeah, which, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that Han Solo is onto something. <laughs> uh, but I, they were obviously wrong. Because yeah. We're still watching Disney Plus. <laughs> yeah, Star Wars, <laughs> seven different Star Wars things a year now. One of the biggest, most successful things that ever existed, you know. So, so if puts that Star if, Trek horseshit to shame, <laughs> it made Star Trek say, "Shit, we gotta do a movie or yeah, something." Yeah, let's do a really boring one. <laughs> 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 but yeah, so Star Wars hits and and changes the world. Yeah, you know, we in our prequel episode, we'll be talking a little bit about how George Lucas changed the game, not just uh, with movies, but with how movies are made and yep, and uh, how we see movies, how we hear movies, all that shit, right? Yep. So obviously he is more iconic than we today give him credit for uh, right. and kind of molding what movies have evolved into. Yeah. When you go back and you really see how he came up with American Graffiti yeah. and... THX and Star Wars and the first Raiders when you see all of those notes that he puts together to make these things and gets these other creative people involved because it's not just him of course it's a group that comes together and makes all these things together but to see how he's the conductor of this kind of stuff 
I think he's taken for granted a lot yeah. these days just because he's that guy that made those boring Star Wars movies that yeah. ever, all these geeks are blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah. Guys got tattoos of that shit on their body. What a bunch of nerds. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And so this one as a like a three punch, it makes you kind of reflect all the dark shit, all the dark seedy shit that's going on in the 70s. Yeah. Nixon and Vietnam and yeah. all this heavy shit that's going on. That's being reflected in the films that are all really dark, right. like Taxi really, Driver. and Right. But it seems like even though Jaws in 75 is a dark film in places, yeah. there's dark things happening. In the end, you know, the good guy. Wins. Everything goes yeah. okay. It right. all it all it all comes out okay. And then you get to Star Wars, right. which is just completely going the opposite way and giving you this fun film. You right. go and you're having a blast watching Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and all of these characters. Right. It's the Joseph Campbell uh hero's journey where the boy has to become a man right. and save the universe kind of thing. And he's triumphant, right? Right. And that almost wakes up society in a way to say i don't i don't know if we want to keep watching these you not immediately not right, immediately no. but but it kind of starts the dominoes start to fall pretty soon yeah. where it's like do we want all these dark films all the time you know so right. that by the time we get to the you know the 80s at a certain point it's a lot more right. bubble bubble gum than it was in the 70s oh yeah you, know, you lose a lot of that grit there's grit because, movies still out there but not in right not dominating the scene I personally think that if Star Wars wouldn't have come out and did what it did in 1977, that in 1978, when we got Superman, it wouldn't have done as well. It right. opened the door for people to say, I want this imaginary, out there, fairy tale, right. know, have fun kind of movie. Yeah, because you got to remember, too, not unlike the times we're going through right now the 70s were a pretty dark time like you said not right. just with the, the the bad people that were influencing us but there was inflation was really fucking high right. employment was unemployment was really fucking high there was gas right. shortages the yeah. whole muslim thing started and then <laughs> where right. they were dogs and cats living <laughs> together mass <laughs> hysteria yeah the vietnam war <laughs> all of that right. shit and finding out how horrible it actually was and not right. knowing that and yeah, the, the 70s were a pretty dark time. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I think it took people a little while to, to kind of say, wait a second. Yeah, we need we need to feel good stuff. We need hope. Yeah, we need a new hope. <laughs> and then George <laughs> Lucas by 82 says, oh, I'm going to call it a new hope <laughs> or 80, whatever. But yeah, um, yeah you take Star Wars. And you know those set pieces are freaking amazing. Some the best, yeah. They, yeah. They're mind blowing. They make, they are on the level of what King Kong was in 1933. Yes. Again, they had reinvented what is possible in filmmaking. This is that leap again. Yeah, right. Huge leap. If you saw stuff before Star Wars, it's that that uh, BCAD period. Yeah, right. You know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And there's and so yeah, there's before Star Wars, after Star Wars. You see Star Wars. You see that whole. The trench that run, whole space, the whole the trench, trench run, run of yeah. the Death Star blowing it up, it's it's mind-altering. It's yeah. crazy. And I'm, yeah. I'm not talking about the special editions even. If you yeah. can get a hold of the old editions, yeah. it's still like, wow! Yeah, yeah. And so it takes him to make that, right. to make the people who do Superman in 78 say, 
what can we do to make this groundbreaking? Yeah. To where when people go, and they even had that tagline attached to Superman, you will believe a man can fly. Yeah, right, right. And so when you go in and you see this, the rigs that they come up with to do this stuff, sure, when you look at it now, you're like, oh, you know, it's obviously back screen projected and stuff. Yeah. But then when people went to see it, it was just like, holy shit. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and so they go into these things trying to make these big set pieces and stuff like that. So you have the helicopter falling with Lois in right. and he comes up and he saves her first and then grabs his helicopter and yeah. everything. That's that stuff you want to see with a Superman film and stuff. So all of these movies coming out and grabbing the imaginations of these people. Yeah, he says... Easy, miss. I've got you. She goes... Yeah. You, you, you got, got me. me. Who's got you? <laughs> and then so, she goes yeah. completely insane. <laughs> Marco Kidder. No, yeah. she says, can you read my mind? <laughs> do you know what it is that you do to me? <laughs> Gross. So, Arf. So, so <laughs> yeah, but all of that stuff capturing the America's imagination, those set pieces really build up that by the time we get to 1981, we got those two guys coming together, yeah. Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, and right. we're saying, we'll show you some set pieces. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And one of the coolest movies of all time, but we're talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. I'm going after that truck. Oh, I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. What a, just a mind-blowing concept of, <laughs> of an adventure film. Yeah, it's kind of like, when it's for me a perfect film it, 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 yeah, it does so many good things right yep what it does too also that I think is very important as this series will push on as we're talking about outrageous action and stuff like yeah. that is that Raiders grounds it enough that even when slightly outrageous stuff happens you're not like eh you know like a lot of people can look at the, the whole truck scene in it which is fantastic I feel yeah. it's fantastic right but a lot of people look at it, oh, he'd be dead when he hit, oh, they, that's ridiculous. How is he living through this kind of right. thing and everything? So I think when you see him live through stuff like that, when you get to further adventures, it's easy for your mind to go, well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if well, he can live through that. Here's the other thing, though. I mean, yeah, it does ramp up as time goes on, right? But, yeah. But yet he still tends to get hurt. He yeah. is human. He makes mistakes. Right. Whereas a lot of these other guys, as they go along, or characters, I should say, as these characters go on with their sequels and all that stuff, they become more and more overblown and impenetrable yeah. and don't make mistakes right. and, or you know, be, like we we're talking about, become almost like superheroes in a way. And as we, yeah. you know, as we well, we have very prime examples of that in the last <laughs> 10, 20 years. But what's cool about Indiana Jones is, and, and you're going to see it even in this new one as he's an old, old ass man and all that stuff. Right. He's not perfect. He's right. He gets hurt. He gets thrown off and you know, he's right. human and makes mistakes. Right. And so, uh, you talk about another huge set piece. Yeah. George Miller brings road warrior road warrior. Right. So this is a second. This is a sequel. It's a sequel, and but then it also becomes a genre-defining sequel. You know right. what I mean? It even it, it so far stretches. But we've talked about this one, of course, a million times. Yeah. But right. it's similar to the original movie, but it pushes it up in such yep. a way, and and because it's post-apocalyptic, it switches it up enough to make it very different from the first movie. Oh yeah. 
and becomes basically the template for all a post-apocalyptic movies yeah. afterward. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. The, and the set piece is huge because the set piece is like half of the movie, and that's them being in the in that semi truck being chased the whole fucking time. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And that is just ridiculous because again, this movie it doesn't fall into the trap of what. Not even, I'm not going to point to movies just of the era that we are currently in, yeah. but also, I would say, 80s, and even some of this, the 70s movies, but as we progress, especially 80s, 90s on, it seems like some movies think of the set piece first, yeah. and then say, Build a just movie figure out it. how to get there. Right, right, right. Yeah, and this, Road Warrior doesn't seem like that. It seems like we have an idea that this guy ends up at this place. How yeah. do we get him out of this situation? Right. And this is the answer. This is the equation to that. Right. And that leads to a gigantic set piece that's amazing. Right. And it, it unfolds naturally. And, and with the unfolding leading to this great set piece, it also has interesting things for the characters to do building towards that also building suspense into that yeah and that's a well-crafted movie right it's like indiana jones right exactly and the other thing too is there's not really a whole lot of dips like once it gets going right it's going there's no like you know taking a nap while the <laughs> right. while the thing is happening or let's have a touching talk about our past right and what happened to my wife and kids while right. uh, uh, i was in the first movie you know none of right. there's no downtime for any miller of that. has a, a, a thing like that in road warrior and it's so brief it's 30 seconds maybe and yeah. all it is is someone's playing a radio while this kid's trying to talk to him and he hears a raid on the a song on the radio that he flashes back to very briefly to a scene in the movie right. from the first one where he thinks of his wife. That's it. And then yeah. he just gets this look. That's all you need to say. You need, he doesn't need to pontificate on, right. I had this daughter one right. time, yeah. or I had this wife. And, you know, you yeah. don't need that. Right. Less time wasted, more time wrecking right. cars and weirdos with uh, mohawks and shit, throwing, shooting yeah. arrows. And and less of him talking, period, just yeah. makes him a cool fucking character. Right, we are. We, which we talked about in our anti-heroes thing, where right. the less character talks, the more mystique he has. Right. Road Warrior, of course, gets a bunch of mocks of people trying to harp that movie from yeah. there on out. Right. And so does Raiders. <laughs> Raiders, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and even pulls along some cast members from Raiders. In those <laughs> yeah, movies, as you'll hear in our canon episode. Right, right, yeah. Rambo's a civilian now. He's my problem. I don't think you understand. I didn't come here to rescue Rambo from you. I came here to rescue you from him. So yeah, 1982 then, First Blood opens, and this is, an, this is one of those things that everyone thought, because Stallone comes out, has Rocky, huge hit. Yeah. Has Rocky too, huge hit. Right. What but else then he you does got? A bunch of other, then he does a bunch of other things that just don't hit. Right, like Nighthawk and stuff like that, right? Yeah, he does Nighthawk. He does uh, uh, like this weird World War II soccer movie. With, oh, uh, I do. I love Victory. Victory. He's not. He's he, yeah. He's not the main player in it. He's a side. No, no. It's he, Michael Caine. Michael him, Caine. And someone yeah, else. yeah. I love that yeah. movie as a kid. He wrote it. He wrote that. Movie. Oh, I didn't know he wrote it. Okay. Yeah. So he he was doing what he could to kind of get away from the rock so everyone wouldn't think oh he's punchy over here yeah right and, and those movies just didn't hit so then this is the one that he does which is first blood in 82 that 
He basically did, all right, I'll be a, a big action star. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you twist my arm. <laughs> you twist my arm. So he does first blood. This is a big hit. And But I think this is, even though we've had movies before of one man against an army of blah, yeah, blah, blah, right. you know, kind of thing. This is such a big hit that I think it gets all of Hollywood to say that's something we can do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because that becomes like the action movie of the 80s is the lone yeah. man. But yeah, you know, you get yep. all your Chuck Norris movies and yep. even Arnold Schwarzenegger and movies and all that stuff. Yeah. Right. And thanks to canon yeah. at this time, Chuck Norris and Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson did the lone man against the gang and, yeah. and Death Wish in the early 70s was a hit and didn't go anywhere and it takes canon to go we need to make a sequel yeah. many sequels out of this let's, you know, let's so. do four sequels out of Death Wish <laughs> and so uh, yeah that becomes something that I think can they can staple on to Chuck Norris and Charles Bronson and, right. and eventually Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah, and, and even and Clint Eastwood because again Clint you know Eastwood, we're yeah. getting into the multiple sequels of Dirty Harry and, right. and he, you know for sure he had some. He also had some strange movies in between there too, like Firefox and Firefox. Uh, yeah. And, right. Yeah. It has that big set piece at the very end, where right? It's all effects and you know. right. And then also in 1982, though, we get a movie that Disney throws a fuck ton of tech at, yeah. which is Tron. Right. And it bombs. Right. But they use that tech to make a bunch of let's appeal to the video game crowd out right. there, you know, and really trying to do that. And what it does is they eventually hit those people. Right. Like 10 years later. Right. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I do remember the, the Tron arcade game. Me too. Being yeah. super popular, uh, yep. more so than the movie was. Yeah, there were bigger lines at the arcade than there was at the theater. The, the, that was theaters, the theaters, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So... What are you going to do? I mean, eventually it hits. It, it hits, and then it gets its own sequel, and then it's about to get another sequel. Right. But what that does, though, is it starts setting the example of if we throw a lot of effects at a movie, yeah, we maybe can fix script problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of thing, which has happened before, but it seems to be perpetual Right. past this. And then the unfortunate event is when we get to 1983, a movie comes out, Twilight Zone. You, you want to see something really scary? You bet. This starts setting what I think starts to become something called the Twilight Zone Factor, which is John Landis is doing a short on this Twilight Zone movie and Correct. ends up killing two little uh, Asian kids and the actor Vic Murrow. Yeah. And the studio gets so much heat from this because the kids were hired under the table because he knew he couldn't do the child labor laws right. to film the shot at night. Right. So he hired kids under the table and then it was unsafe conditions and he knew about it. Right. And I don't so, know if anybody knows what... It's a Vietnam-based scene and... Uh, yeah. uh, they're flying a Huey helicopter right above the set pieces. He's Vic Morrow is going to rescue these two, what are supposed to be Vietnamese girls, out of the river, and the helicopter right. loses control and well, comes down. Explosions are going off. Yeah, causes the causes damage to the back rotor. Back rotor, which causes you know yeah. when you have a, it causes the helicopter to spin out of control and it comes down, right. and the main rotor blade literally cuts all three of them in half. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Pretty horrifying. Horrible. Yeah, there's there's yeah. there's actually a footage of it on YouTube. So yeah, this gets Hollywood in so much 
heat and he even is charged with murder a lot of the staff is charged with murder they go to trial they end up being found not guilty right but hollywood really comes under scrutiny now and so a lot of things that were done before this movie are starting to get locked down on so you can't just go out and go 90 down the middle of san francisco and all of this stuff now you know that you can't start endangering people's lives anymore it starts they start cracking down and i think not that that's a bad thing but I think that that is an easy factor to l- start leaning in right. to special effects. Right. Yeah. Yep. To take away from the practical because it is more risk adverse. Right. So after this, you will start seeing even special effects people s- start to do rigs where there's dummies that look like they're driving the car and they can control it via remote yeah. control. So right. if you're doing a car crash scene or something, people yeah. aren't in it and taking jobs away from the stunt people and stuff. Sure. Right. Again, not playing against it. I'm just saying it's an industry change. Yeah. Hello, this is the AI voice of Robert Stack. Help these two poor boys on this podcast and go rate this podcast five stars. Leave a review. And because Derek and Tim are very sensitive, please be kind. If for some reason you would like to speak to these lovable bitches, you can find them on Instagram at TFTFP Podcast or you can reach them at TFTFPPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Transmissions from the Forbidden Planet. Now back to these two nerdy unsolved mysteries. So 1984, though, the next year is when the Terminator uh, comes out. Big Jimmy Cameron. Uh, yeah, setting up a future megastar of a director <laughs> and a f- megastar of an actor, too. I'll be back. Arnold Schwarzenegger had been in Conan the Barbarian by this point and was becoming known. Yep. But I think the Terminator really helped push him into uh, superstardom, oh, yeah. you know? Yep. So what's unique about the Terminator is is it's full of little tiny vignette set pieces. Right. That you remember. You remember the nightclub scene and you remember the scene right. where he you know, he he pushes in the door and blows away the The first Sarah Connor, first yeah. First Sarah Connor. And yes. then of course the whole end scene when the industrial factory and Right, the, with the press term- and, and right. he's obviously his skin is burned off. Right. So those are little vignettes that he puts in those that are little set pieces that you remember coming out of that film. And I think that that's important because Jim Cameron is very much, let's push to see how far we can do special effects. Are people going to believe this robot's real? Even though it's herky-jerky stop motion, I think he starts saying, what else can we do? And and, and it gets his mind going, especially being he's coming from a special effects background. Right. Working on Piranha 2 and an escape from New York and stuff like that. Right, right. Get away from her, you bitch! So by the time you get to 1986... When, yeah, when he does the sequel to Alien. Right. With Aliens, and he takes up what's essentially a sci-fi horror and yep. turns it into sci-fi action. Action. Right. So that's what he does. And then, again, with this one, he's using lots of aliens and lots of tech. Yeah, and upping the ante guys. as high as possible. Right, right. Yeah, and I think I'd say one of the biggest set pieces in that is obviously the ending where she's in the exoskeleton fighting the, exactly. the mother alien, you know. Right. I wonder if he'll ever think of using that, that again. again. Yeah, but maybe... Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> okay. 
And then 1985, though, going back a year, this is a movie that Jim Cameron had a hand in writing. And oh, Rambo okay. 2. Okay. And this is just to show in 85, Rambo 2 is already made out for the success of Rambo. Stallone is starting to sink into that. I'm an action star. I'm, I'm, I'm relying on Rambo and Rocky from yeah, here on out. Right, till, right. Till I do... What's that honky tonk movie? <laughs> Rhinestone? <laughs> Rhinestone. But wiser you created a monster and they call him freaking Stein. 87 hits and yeah, that's there's a lot of good shit happening in 1987. For one, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Predator. Yep. Movie that kind of comes out of nowhere. You know what yep. I mean? Unexpected and a bit genre bending and uh, yep. a very original concept for an alien yep. movie, which even at this point is starting to get difficult to do, but they did it. Right. Yep. You know, and what a, and, and, and the effects are great. The action Amazing. is great. Yeah. Yep. What a fucking cool movie. And talk about a movie with a lot of great set pieces. Right. You know, you got the whole village that they raid, and, you know, the the predators watching from the long distance, and then the whole when they finally find out where the predator, the guy's unloading the gun and knocking down half the forest. Yeah, (laughs) right, right. Yeah. That's uh, Jesse Ventura. Jesse Ventura, yeah. I ain't got time to bleed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and then the whole end scene, you know, he's covered in mud, mud and yeah, traps. that big, big open kind of lake scene, yeah. Right. You one ugly motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, so, and then, you know, Robocop. Drop it! Robocop. We talked a lot about this one. In yeah, the we've talked movie. a lot about it, how much we love this fucking movie. Yep. Yeah, another one that it kind of takes on the Terminator concept, you know, but makes yeah. him a good guy, you know, from the yep. beginning. And, you know, the whole cybernetic robo-cop, like, quite literally. Yep. Yeah, and talk about set pieces in that. There's, t- you know, jeez, man, all over the place. All over the place. Yeah, that's what I mean. You know, you these days I think about it and like, oh, it's just set piece after set piece. I mean, but that one is a lot of them strung together with a story, though, that I still like. Yeah. You know? No, there's a good story in there, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's because of the way the, the thing was written and rewritten and rewritten yeah. and crafted over time to try and make you know, and uh, and until it becomes, right. you add Verhoeven's uh, uh, sensibility of parody to it, and and yeah. then it, it becomes a very unique film. Right. It can't be just a guy gets hit, goes into chemical waste. He has to come out half yeah, melted right. and then get hit by something else yeah. and then Explode. liquefied. Yeah. <laughs> so that, you know, Red from that 70s show has to put the wipers on to get his friend off the windshield. Clarence Brodiger, you are under arrest. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and then another huge, huge hit is Lethal Weapon, a buddy cop Lethal film. Weapon. You know, But we, that's one thing we kind of missed is Another one of the um, 80s kind of creations, uh, a genre addition to the action film was the buddy cop thing. Buddy cop. But this one is the thing that really makes them explode. They've right. been around before this, Yeah. but the success of how big Lethal Weapon becomes yeah. makes them go, ooh. That's it. That's it. Yep. You ever met anybody you didn't kill? Well, I haven't killed you yet. <clears throat> Two cops do like that. each other, yeah. Yep. Or don't like each other. Right, because you know, then you have like Tango and Cash. Tango all of these Cash, films. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. 
And then Arnold is officially an action hero because in the same year he has Running Man. Without further ado, it's time to start running! Short story by Stephen King, and that one, I always remember in this one, the, the guy with the chainsaw that he's fighting. Yeah. And then the opera singer guy that shoots the electric. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Here is Sub-Zero, now just... Plane Zero. <laughs> There's some pretty bad writing in that. Uh, and Richard Dawson too, as you know, who's who we all knew oh, yeah. as, from the 80, as an 80s kid and a 70s kid. Richard Dawson was the host of the Family Food, and he always had right. the pinky out with the ring on it, you know. And right. he was always kissing all the wives and the mothers right. of the family, and and he pretty much just plays himself in this. But yeah. you know, it's uh, genius casting, though. Yeah, it really was actually. Yeah. I mean, it's a corny movie, for sure. Oh, it's corny, yeah. All these movies right here in this time yeah, they is, is all thick We're amping up the cheese, yeah. saccharine, kind of cheesy. Well, and Schwarzenegger's starting to get his uh, oh, full yeah. of himself kind of thing. Because, yep. you know, the, the cheesy, like the line I just said. I think he even says, I'll be back in it a few times. Yeah, he does. You know, so, does. Uh, you know, taking from his own famous line in The Terminator. And uh, then he starts saying it in every movie every after movie, that. yeah. Well, even in the movie he does a few years before this, which is Commando, it's one yeah. man against an army of yeah, whatever, right, you right. know, who has his That's his daughter. Rambo, right. Right. He throws the pipe right into through the, the guy, guy, goes through him, and goes, let off some steam yeah. in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one rule. You guys think you're above the law. You're in above mine. But we have to get to 1988 if we want to talk about a real action star, and that's Steven Seagal. Whoa. <laughs> One of the best Hollywood runners there ever was. Oh, yeah, he's the king of the assholes. I fell for it. Back in these days, I remember Above the Law. I, I, I remember really loving that movie. And Sharon, right. Sharon Stone plays his wife, doesn't she? Or is that Mark I for... I don't remember. I don't I th- or remember. is that Mark for Death? I can't remember. He did a lot around this time. I've only seen a few. See, back then, it seemed like there were two teams. There was the Seagull team, and then there was the, the Van, Van Damme team. team. And I went Van Damme. Yeah. yeah. I went both. I, I still watched both. I preferred Jean-Claude. Right. But I still watched all, like, Out for Justice and uh, Mark for Death and right. uh, Hard to Kill. All the three, all the three word <laughs> titles. Are... <laughs> and, and, and you can see here, though, in 88, where we're starting to cross oh, the yeah. threshold of maybe the writing quality is going down and the action quality is ramping up. Oh, yeah. It's definitely, definitely the decay of story yeah. leaning to let's just kick some ass and blow some shit up. Right. And boom. That's all people are going to remember. The Have a cheesy line pyrotechnic guys are getting paid a shit ton of money to blow up a shit ton of stuff oh yeah they're rock stars right now yeah because <laughs> you also have red heat which is a buddy cop movie in a <laughs> right. weird way with, with arnold schwarzenegger playing a rush a soviet cop with jim belushi who's uh, the american belushi. whatever cop you know right and jim belushi the year before was paired up with a dog in Kena. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. You got Rambo 3 coming out right now and then, of course, the One Man Against the Army Die Hard movie, which yeah. is Die Hard, and right. that cements Bruce Willis. It does, into superstardom and all that stuff. Come to the coast. We'll get together, have a few laughs. And the unfortunate thing is, you know, this is where we start to see 
the superheroification yep. of a character because John McClane yep. in the first movie, like I was talking about with Indiana Jones and the in Raiders movies and the series, all that stuff, he's a tangible, herded, yeah. uh, 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 fallible guy who can get hurt. Yeah, I mean, he's fucked up by the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, he's all <laughs> fucked up by the end of that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then by the time we get to some of the later sequels, he's like, f- yeah. you know, hanging off of jet fighters and all this shit. And it's like, what the hell? You're just a normal guy. What the hell happened? You know, he falls off of a jet, a Harrier jet, skids down the side of a fallen freeway. Yeah. And no road rash. No. <laughs> yeah. So setting up that whole right. kind of train wreck of shit. So if we're going to keep going year by year for now. Right. 89, we get the reintroduction and the fire relit in the comic book movies with Michael Keaton as Batman. Batman right, because within 78 to 87, yeah. DC and Warner blew their wad on Super, Superman. Superman, yeah. And and really those movies them. are increasingly getting worse and worse and worse and worse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Because they're doing this thing that we're talking about. They're relying solely on, oh, this sounds like a cool set piece. What, how do we get there? How does Superman get there? Eh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and like we mentioned in our Canon Films episode, the fourth right. one is a Canon film, and those guys don't give right. a shit about storyline yeah. at all. They're it had just, no chance. <laughs> yeah, it had no chance. Yeah. Budget slashing and all that. Right. So, and then also in '89 we get the next lethal weapon already because it's such a massive hit. This one's even bigger hit. Yeah. A lot of, but it's it's starting to become that. Oh, we found a mold that we like. Right. Let's, let's keep this format here kind of thing and have Mel Gibson be angry at some guys about something. Have Danny Glover try to talk him out of it and be like, Oh, all right, let's go kill him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then rinse and repeat. I mean, I like those movies, but, but yeah. it is formula. Yeah, it is It is a formula. And then 89, by the end, we get the supposed end of the Indiana Jones trilogy. Trilogy, yeah. Yeah. Right, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Because, you know, Temple of Doom kind of missed the mark with a lot of people. You know, right. Young right. people really liked it for their time because it was, you know, they're young and all that stuff. Right, right. You know, some people didn't think Temple of Doom lived up to the, right. the supremacy of the original movie. And it also did that thing. It upped him a bit. He's jumping out of planes yeah. with three other people, right. or two other people attached to him with a... Life raft. Life raft, yeah. yeah. Air raft. Well, that and, and the mine shaft, the, 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 the whole mine, mine cart thing the... is getting a little... Yeah. It's upping the ante, like you said. Right, right, right. right. And, yeah, and it's a lot more mystical, too, because of the... The stones. The yeah. stones and all that. But Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade kind of pulls it back. And yep. the addition of Sean Connery as his father was genius casting. It was very Amazing. well written. It's like, who could be Indiana Jones' father? How about the original James Bond? <laughs> Fucking A race cars. <laughs> yeah, pretty badass. Yeah, no, I love this movie. I remember seeing it in the theaters and yeah. just being like, holy shit. This movie's great. Yeah. Yeah. And then sets up, you know, in that talk about set piece when he has to choose the, uh, yep. you, uh, the one of the more quotable Indiana Jones lines, you've chosen wisely. Wisely, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Right. And more Nazi shit, you know. Who doesn't yeah. love seeing Nazis get killed, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And then, though, we get a new addition to the um, the action heroes. Right. And that's uh, fucking Dalton. Dalton. Thought you'd be bigger. <laughs> Patrick Swayze in Roadhouse, right? What a fucking dope-ass, <laughs> ass-kicking movie. 
Unfortunately, he had to go toe to toe with Ben Gazzara. Yeah. He had a hard time with him somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like Bruce Lee with the little guy in, uh, at the end of Enter the Dragon. Except the guy, this guy didn't have six inch claws on his hand. <laughs> no, I know. But uh, this is one of those movies that is just stupid from beginning to end, yeah. but it's awesome from beginning yep. to end. You yep. know what I mean? It's <laughs> so cheese machismo, and yeah. it's just like, I love every minute of this. Yeah, and it's also back in that pre-PC era when there's yep. titties and boobies everywhere, and, yep. you know, Patrick Swayze's showing his ass, and... Right. You know, uh, lots of corny, weird, misogynistic lines in it and all this yep. stuff. But that's the way it was back in those days. And you got Sam Elliott. Yeah, Sam Elliott with his head boy. tilted to the side. <laughs> <laughs> As it always is. Far from it, dude. Far from it. <laughs> so, yeah, the 90s, basically, what we're doing is Willis is becoming this huge action star now. What he's smartly doing is integrating it with little dramas, but yeah. his action films are becoming more and more diluted with unrealism then there was also the last boy scout last boy scout was ridiculous i hate that movie but everybody loved that movie yeah him and damon wayans but it was a huge hit it's that it's that lethal weapon thing yeah right it was yeah yeah the buddy cop thing yep more like an evolution of like 48 hours because damon wayans is not a cop you know what i mean kind of like eddie murphy's not a cop but they you know doofus yeah. teams up with a cop you know right no for sure and then arnold's peaking right now 90s yeah. is prime arnold time yeah like the first part of the 90s not the last part of the 90s right the right. first part of the 90s. right and then sly he starts falling falling for sure mainly here in america because the reason he keeps getting big paychecks at this time all through the 90s for demolition man and assassins and all these movies that don't do shit over here overseas he's he's one of the biggest stars right He's right. making fuck tons of money. So I, I always remember that. Like, how is he getting these big movies still? If yeah. Every one of them are bombing here. But yeah. I read something that that was why. This Judge Dredd is so terrible. Yeah. Judge Dredd and Assassins and. Yeah. And the specialists uh, and. Specialists. Yeah. yeah. It was just all of these horrible movies. The one that did hit, though, was Cliffhanger. That was the Cliffhanger. one. Cliffhanger. That, that in the 90s. That, and it blew up. And I remember seeing it the same year that Jurassic Park came out, I right. think. Right. And I remember thinking it, it was fun. Yeah. And Lithgow's the villain. Right. And it, it follows this diehardy kind of mentality right. for sure. Yeah. But I dug it. I remember d- digging it. But everything after that he did was. Yeah. Kind and of well, and all the shit before it, too, because that was before it was yeah. the canon era with the cobra yeah. and over the top and. Right. <laughs> Ain't no easy way out. You know, and Rocky <laughs> four and right. Rocky five too. Rocky five. Yeah. Five in the 90s, yeah, and that's when right. it dies and goes away until he brings it back and redeems it. Right. And then the 90s also, even though we get the resurgence with Michael Keaton as Batman, Warner does the same thing with that franchise as it did with just Superman. Beats they just it run it into the ground. Right. <laughs> yeah, the Joel Schumacher movies, which, you know, yeah, the first one was a hit, but it does not hold up well at all if you go back. And it, it's a we terrible got a whole show. That we yeah, a whole about show it. about that. We're talking about how terrible those movies are. And of course, <laughs> everybody pans Batman and Robin, but. Right. And that's where Arnold is at his peak at the beginning of the 90s. Yeah. He ends up at Batman and Robin by the end of the and 90s. And that's where he's kind of blew his wad right there. That's right. right there. I mean, True Lies is somewhere around there. Yeah, 94. And, and and that's pretty much it. He's yep. he's kind of Yeah, in my reflection and my as a fan of Arnold, in my yeah. reflection, his superstardom, he's on top and he did great stuff, 
yeah. fun stuff ends with true life yeah. after that it's all garbage uh. yeah the eraser <laughs> and yeah collateral damage and all this uh what's the one with the clones uh oh six day six day <laughs> But as we're saying, at the beginning of it, in 91, T2 comes out, changes the fucking game. Yeah, again. Just restructures what an action movie is. Because like we were saying about before, there are a lot of movies in the past with a set piece and then story, set piece, story, set piece. But a lot of those set pieces grow. Mm -hmm. They grow and they become bigger. And what T2 does is it has a big war set piece at the beginning, nuclear explosion, wiping out everyone, skeletons and stuff, and then story. And then big chase scene. And the truck goes off and into the L.A. Canal and it's chasing John Connor on his little bike. And then that's a huge set piece that you usually see at the end of a movie. And right. James Cameron's like, we're going to put that right in, in the, the middle. beginning, right. Yeah. Well, and what's cool, like he did with Aliens, where he flipped the whole concept of what the sequel should be. And rather it right. be like a, a rehash of everything you saw in the first time, he's flipping the whole story around. And right. As far as we know, that Terminator that looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger is a bad guy. In, bad and, guy, yeah. Yeah, so... You have to wait and figure out to find out that this new young guy is that's dressed like a cop is is actually the bad guy, you know, right. not the Kyle Reese part two, you know. The time in the movie, if you go into a cold for sure, the re- when you realize Arnold's good is when he has the gun pointed at John Connor and then says, "Get down." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Cause I remember going into that movie cold. Yeah. And and then that happened, and being, I'd be like, oh, oh, oh he's a good shit. guy. He's a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> Which you should have known, because Arnold back then was like, I don't play villains anymore. Yeah, it was the only time he did was that one time. Yeah. Except for Mr. Freeze. <laughs> yeah, valid. The Iceman cometh. So yeah, where T2 changes the game, of course, with with CG Sp- and special effects, effects and stuff and like that. Yeah, big right. set pieces, but they all again work naturally into the script. Yeah, it flows from one thing to another very naturally. Right. And then Jurassic Park comes in and then just cements. Cements the CGI. CGI right? Yeah. And I think Hollywood completely does a complete shift in, and they were just like, well, we don't. Have have to do a million takes on these things that might not work the first two or three takes when we can just get it right like that with cgi well and think about how much less they had to pay phil Tippett to do right through all of that stop motion that he was supposed to do right and then you have this these two burgeoning computer nerd geeks figuring this out you know and they cost next to nothing at that time because right nobody they had no value you know what i mean right. so yeah, and and the thing about what's funny is, the the CG in Jurassic Park is better than most of the CG that follows it. Yeah, <laughs> you know what no, I mean. If I you, know. you you look back at it today, and it still looks fucking phenomenal. Amazing. Yeah. No, I just watched the last Jurassic World movie yeah. about a week and a half, two weeks ago. Right. And the stuff in the first Jurassic Park holds up better. Than some of the stuff in that new brand new movie, part. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, because they were smart about it, choosing to do it in the rain and and, right. and and at nighttime and all that stuff, which is hides all the limitations of the CG. Right, and it also switches back and forth between practical dinosaurs and CG dinosaurs, right? Right. So it's hard to know is that is that the real one? There yeah, right, that, right. It's amazing to me that that you know. So it's a 
amazing leap forward and and an and in some ways an unfortunate easy tool to hand to yeah. all the lazy yeah. film directors out there yeah and studios and stuff so exactly because what ends up starting to happen is i think even by the time independence day even comes out i'm jumping ahead a little bit but just right. by the time independence day comes out and is a big success that's one of the last yeah practical model making films i mean yeah. outside you know we did talk about in our star wars episode that george did use a decent amount of miniatures on the phantom menace but yeah. by that point the cgs evolved so much that geez by the late 90s or even by the mid 90s it's a lot of this action stuff is just getting hokey phony cartoony looking yeah fake shit you know totally yeah i can't do this sure you can who knows you might like it it's a killer rush buddy this is your fucking wake-up call man i am an fbi agent <laughs> i know man isn't it wild if we go back just for a minute, that same year that T2 comes out in 91, Keanu Reeves hits his first action film with Point Break. Right, yeah. <laughs> so we got the Sways coming back. Yeah, yeah, right. That's part two. <laughs> yeah, which is going to set up a franchise down the road here that yep. is, is kind of the epitome of what we're talking about and yep. like going off the fucking shit wagon. But right. uh, uh, we'll get to that soon enough. Um, right. But yeah, Point Break, uh, this was a lot of practical stuff in that, you know, guys yeah. parachuting oh, yeah. and all that. It's a fun action movie, too. And this is from the ex-wife of James Cameron, too. So Yeah, right, right. Is yeah, that Catherine yeah, yeah. Bigelow? Or, yeah, yeah, Bigelow, yeah. yeah. And she does it, I think she does a good job. She makes real stylized kind of film. Right. You know, it's it's one of those slick mochismo kind of films and stuff, but there's right. some cool stuff. I remember stuff from it, which is what I usually judge uh, on how, how good the set pieces right, are and stuff right. like that. Yeah, well, it was it's pretty iconic when they, the yeah. ex, they call themselves the ex-presidents and they use all the different presidents' masks as bank right. robbers and all that stuff, yeah. And the misdirect with uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know, yeah. and you definitely think those are the bad guys, you know? Yep. Yep. Uh, or the the ones are, he's after, and yeah, it's it, it's a clever movie, and and then you yeah. got pre motorcycle accident Gary Busey, <laughs> but he's still just as nuts as he's ever been. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's still completely kooky, but he's a, <laughs> he's fun in it. Yeah, he is fun in it. Right. Yeah. So it introduces to the action genre that we're talking about, Mr. Keanu Reeves. Right. Well, and he'll become which important. will be a home for him. Yeah. You know, in that same year Jurassic Park comes out, John Woo comes to America and does Hard Target. Not right. that I want to concentrate on Hard Target, all, right. but what I think John Woo coming to America and doing films, right. from what people loved about his foreign films, right. they bring him over to kind of duplicate that. And I think he's restricted by a lot of American right. studios, what they want, what they think audiences want and stuff. So what you get is flourishes of his action style, yeah. but with bravado Americana stuff pushed into it, and right. it, it's wonky. It comes out weird. But what it does, too, is it introduces something to the action genre that is adopted that I think makes it become more cheesy cheesy and over the lessens top it. Yeah. yeah yeah right because you you know i haven't seen it since it was a big 
underground hit, but the killer was the one that kind of brought him to America, yeah. right? That That's his movie with Chow Young-Fat and right. kind of introduces the whole flying through the air double... Uh, two guns. Two, gun, two, hand, yeah. two guns in the hands kind of thing that becomes like a staple of modern filmmaking right. these days. Uh, and it's beautiful, and, and there was a lot of beautiful action in the in that movie, The Killer. I do right. remember that. I don't remember if it. I don't know if it would hold up today, you know. Right, right. But no, it was definitely like watching action mixed with ballet. Yeah, it was this exactly. Weird kind of. Yeah, so that when he does do Mission Impossible Two, it's that's where it gets really cheesy. Yeah. Yeah, so he has this like motorcycle romantic dancing <laughs> slow mo scene between right. Tad Tadley Newton and and uh, Tom Cruise, and it's so. It's. Che- I remember seeing that in the theater and just being like, "What the fuck is yeah, this?" No, I'm a fan of the Mission Impossible series, yeah. except for that one. Right. That's the dark horse for me. Yeah. Of that, I'm like, I I don't like watching that one. I it just yeah, it was bad. Going back to Hard Target, like you were saying, it, I mean, it's a terrible fucking movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Jean-Claude, you can tell, is like at the peak of his coked <laughs> oh, out, yeah. not even checked in. And, you know, like again, I'm a fan of uh, How Did This Get Made? And they did this one several years ago, uh, and they brought up something very interesting that I didn't even notice, because Yancey Butler is the femme fatale in that, and she's beautiful. Right. She's absolutely beautiful, and she right. has these crazy piercing blue eyes we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. She yeah. has herpes, and and you, you can see in some of the scenes she's got a couple of fucking uh, outbreaks happening. Because in other scenes she doesn't have it happening. Uh, oh. And uh, I don't know if you noticed that they kind of bring up in the podcast. He's like, "Yeah, there's no kissing scenes with them." Because I'm sure Jean Claude right. saw that shit and was like, "I will not kiss her." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and and he had that famous famous thing where he like punches out the snake. The snake. Yeah. <laughs> it's so stupid. <laughs> but he, yeah, and he does. There's the, you know, there's a couple of cool stunts on there that, you know, from a practical stunt effect is cool when he's right. like surfing on the motorcycle and the on guy the flips over the van, yeah. when, you know, yeah, that's all it's like, very, it's a practical uh, stunt man doing that shit. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And, and there's a lot of slow-mo and all kinds of stuff in the, uh, you know, and so. Yeah. Which is very John Woo stylized. Yeah. Yeah. That, those are the things that the movie did its job and its, its uh, set pieces because I remember those things. The the like you're saying, the standing on a motorcycle, the flying over it, the punching the snake. The... Right, and he's yeah. got like the king of all horrible mullets and that. <laughs> and he's supposed to be like Louisiana Bayou, and he's got this horrible yeah. accent with the Mamama Tukwan, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of name is Chance? Mamama Tukwan. Plus, you got the forever uh, lovable old Wilford Brimley. In yeah, there, uh, right. Yeah, which is like, and he's do he's doing a, a even oh. worse yeah. Cajun accent, and he, he comes right. and goes and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, but like you said, that introduces John Woo to America and sets us up for the nightmare that is modern action films. Yep. yep. <laughs> unfortunately. No, sure. yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, people saw some of the beauty that he brought to action and unfortunately took the worst parts of that and implemented it into their worst parts of their, <laughs> of yeah. their what they think action is. And it started to, everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, because you, you, you got to think his, his real big successful film in America was Face Off and Nicolas Cage is at the prime of starting to become that unpredictable bananas action cage and he's so amped up in that and then of course John Travolta has to meet it because 
he has right. to play the opposite version of him and all that right. stuff. And then, you know, you're doing all this over-stylized shit, and people... This is setting it up like this and The Rock and, you know, Michael right. Bay is starting to make films and all this stuff. Right. And, and you have the, you know, stylization becomes the thing and over story, over story. Correct. Right. And I think this is when you and I, you know, I remember going to see Face Off in the theater and, yeah, en- and enjoying it and Me thinking too. it's funny. Me too. But kind of like in a tongue in cheek sort of way. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. I it's never ridiculous. I had fun with it watching it. Yeah. I, I probably still would have fun with it yeah. watching it. But yeah. I remember at the time watching it thinking, This is funny action. This is right. not this is the badass act you know, and, right. and the unfortunate part was there were people out there who was like, This is the greatest action ever. Right. Again, it, it ups it takes what Hard Target started and, and puts it yep. in a fiscally successful yep. format so that it snowballs, you know. Right. Again, like I said, there's also things like The Rock and, and uh, Bad Boys and all that kind of stuff right. with these, these over-the-top uh, action comedies and all that kind of kind of comedy, drama, you know what I mean, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so see, 1994 comes along, Keanu comes back and hits it really big with an action movie, which is Speed. Now, this right. is a little movie that no one had any faith in, apparently. Right. This went to Tom Cruise. He turned it down. Right. Nick Cage turned down all of these people. But because this movie came out, hit huge. This was a big movie in 94. And I right. think it was like the third biggest grossing right. movie. Right, oh, I remember, that. yeah. Yeah. And this is the movie that made Tom Cruise go, oh, shit. Like, yeah. Maybe I should think about doing an action movie, which is why he did. Mission Impossible? Mission Impossible okay. a few years later. Okay. But this made Keanu put him in a, in a realm up there of doing, and it does I remember seeing it and not having any faith going into it I went I think with someone because I was like I don't want to see this yeah. and loving it right. I really thought it was great it has really great little action pieces in it it doesn't take its time or do, it doesn't take itself too seriously it gets right. in and out with the action well especially with up. Sandra Bullock is, is the, right. she's the main lead but she's also comic relief through the whole thing right 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 and it moves fast it's not yeah. one of those long action films that takes forever to get i mean it, once it gets going like you were saying sets what you, that it's gonna do does it and then it's over with yeah not like a big wrap-up kind of thing so i think that's what one of the things that had on its side which is why when it gets to the sequel you're like why did they go this way yeah a, a boat Bonkers. that can't slow down or right. something like that yeah, and, and and what you know, Keanu was checked out anyway and didn't want to be involved. Yeah, he was like, I'm not going to do the sequel because it's on a boat and it's slow and it makes yeah. no sense. Yeah, right, yeah. which was smart call for yeah. on his point. Good call, Keanu. So he went and did Johnny Mnemonic instead. <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, but, but in that year that Johnny Mnemonic came out, yeah. guess who finally broke into the American movie picture, the action scene? Jackie Chan, brother. That's right. Yeah. This is where I really was like, I when I went to see this movie, I'm like, that's that guy from, from Cannonball. Cannonball Run. I did the exact <laughs> same thing. I'm like, holy shit. I mean, I kind of, the name was out there, but, you know. I, I, I knew nothing. Yeah. This movie walloped me. I was just like, holy shit. Is this stuff sped up? Right. Is there pillows there I'm not seeing that he's falling on? Nope. 
Right. Yeah, Rumble in the Bronx comes out in America, and it blows up pretty big. I remember that. Yeah. It, it kind of takes the – and this this sets off yep. the Asian Revolution, and in, in, yep. uh, uh, martial arts films start sweeping in. And, and yep. you know, we talked about it a little bit in our Fight Club episode and then some of the other stuff. And We'll definitely talk about it more in the upcoming Jackie Chan one. Yeah, we, right. right. Yeah. And, and basically how he had tried to become – an American star. He had that. Yeah, uh, he did one that I know of. Later on, I found out, but he did one in the early '80s with Danny Aiello called "The Protector," and it was one that he was trying to sculpt to be his. Yeah. And the American studio came in and was just like, "No, you need to be a tough cop. Right. No playing around. Right. No, you know the stuff that he's known for. He wants to show." I hit this thing, ow, it hurts. Yeah, right. I get punched, I, I lose my direction for a little bit, and then, oh, okay, I'm okay, I use this. You know, right, yeah. His, they wouldn't let him be Jackie Chan, right. unfortunately, and that's that's the unfortunate part. So he finally hits with this, and this is a movie that was he had done a few years you before. Used, yeah, right. That was a huge hit in Hong Kong. Yeah, and I think even in other parts of the world, like even in Australia right. and all that stuff. Yeah, so, but then when it does finally release here, yeah, it changes everything. And then you yep. open up the avenue for Jet Li to make a break in Hollywood yep. with like Romeo is Must Die and stuff like that, right. which is not a great movie, but. No. Well, I mean, he first comes in being the villain in Lethal in Weapon Lethal 4, Weapon 4. In Exactly, yeah, yeah that's, that's his big American break. But it, what it also does is like it did for Jackie Chan is all of a sudden his older films, his period uh, wushu yep. kung fu films yep. finally start to get uh, some attraction in the States and they're oh, played. Man. And you know, Man, his remake of... Um, he does a remake of an old Bruce Lee film where basically it's about the Japanese... Uh, army occupying uh, China and kind of oppressing a, a Chinese martial arts school and then it becomes about China versus Japan, right? Oh, right. Jet Li had a remake of that called Fist of Legend. and Man, I remember the first time I saw that movie and it, <laughs> it was probably in the late 90s and all that stuff. I, I, I literally, it was on VHS. That's, a, you know, it wasn't DVD yet. So I, I watched it Blew my fucking mind, rewound it, and started playing it right over again. <laughs> I watched it for four hours, like straight. Just watched it all over again. That's awesome. That movie is cool as shit, you know, for a, right. a, a Hong Kong, a modern Hong Kong theater movie. Not a 70s kind of Wu-Tang Clan kind of movie, but like a, you know, Jet Li at his prime. Right. I mean, there's a lot of wires and and all that kind of stuff. It's, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing about Jet Li is it's more about the the, the beauty of the technique. Right. Uh, and and Wu Shu, like you know, which is basically performance art uh, of right. martial arts versus Jackie Chan's a stuntman doing yeah. hard practical falls, kicks, and getting hit in the head and all that shit. So it's two different right. types of uh, oh yeah, for sure. martial arts, for sure. Because Jackie, yeah, everything I've read about Jackie, Jackie pushes back as hard as he can on wires. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. He'll use them sometimes when he has yeah. to, when the situation yeah. calls. But but it has to be like a yeah. has to. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. But one of the things, too, is a very prominent filmmaker who came up in the 90s when this Asian... Uh, revolution of film started pushing finally through into America. Quentin Tarantino was just like, these are the guys I've been talking about the, in all these goddamn right years. Yeah. yeah, now you're paying attention. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Well, I I almost kind of remember the killer getting a release because of him. Wasn't yeah. It? Yeah. No, wasn't it sure. him that got it yep. brought to the states? Going back yep. to the John Woo story. Yep. Yeah, there was a bunch of those. I remember at the video store when I worked there, like at, presented by Quentin Tarantino, yep. you know, and these like uh, yep. 
Asian um, exploitation films that would right. come out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. I can understand you're very upset. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. And so, 96 hits. Yeah. Tom Cruise finally says, okay, I got my shit together. I'm doing my Mission Impossible movie. He gets right. that movie out. Big hit. But also in 96, you've already alluded to it. Right. The Rock, the Rock and Independence and Day Independence hits. Independence Day, yeah. Both huge movies in 96. Some of the... Uh, Independence is the biggest movie of that year. Right. And I think what that does is that movie makes no fucking sense. The story is absolutely everywhere, and it's atrocious. Yeah. Sorry for the lovers out there. That fucking movie's awful. Right, right. But it, it's huge because of the set pieces. Right. And they, I will not take it away from that. The set pieces of that movie are amazing. Amazing, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, and it's the first time you see the White House blow up. And then... Right. But it's... From from that point on, you see the White House blow <laughs> in like every Gerard Butler or, movie that ever was made. Yeah. <laughs> you or, know what I mean? Or some monument that we know. Yeah, about. some monument, right? right. Yeah. Where, where Hitchcock was like, let's hang someone off of a monument. Right. We know. These guys are like, let's blow, blow it, it up. up. Well, <laughs> yeah, and so we also too, I think for you and I, two of our least favorite movie directors of all time right. in this is that's Michael Bay with The Rock and right. Roland Emmerich with Independence Day. I cannot right. stand these guys and their movies. I cannot yep. stand them. But they put such a huge dent here yeah. in the culture of yeah. movies, right here, yeah. that it a ripple effect happens yeah. after this. They kind of take that John Woo ball we were talking about yep. and exactly. run with it. They just yep. run with it with uh, the schmaltzy cheese amping yep. it up. Roland yep. Emmerich doesn't want to take anything fucking seriously at all. Nope. And Michael nope. Bay is taking himself way too fucking seriously right. in everything and thinks he's the gift to god you know, or you right. know what i mean Ugh. Ugh. that's our that's our soapbox if you ever want to hear the word me <laughs> more than you've ever heard it before listen to a michael bay commentary oh really you'll hear me 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 <laughs> more than any other word on that fucking commentary oh it's my gross. god that's funny it's really gross yeah, but, you know, this is also the idiocracy effect. Uh, you know, the nation's starting to slowly get more and more stupid. So these <laughs> movies become more and more popular and start selling everywhere. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yep. As you can see, we've had our eye on you for some time now, Mr. Anderson. So then 99 hit. And then, of course, The Matrix comes out. Right. It takes that Asian influence, right? But also special effects. Yep. Crams it together with a lot of wild theology. Yeah. From all and kinds of culture right. and philosophy yeah. and, and yeah. all of that stuff. So this is at the height of Jackie Chan Jet Li era, you know. Yep. Of course, too, the rise of uh, Wu Tang Clan in hip hop culture right. also pushes mm -hmm. Asian culture into our culture as well, makes it cool and hip on right. top. It probably allows for movies like Rumble in the Bronx to get released in America. Right. You and know then what Wu Tang I mean? Clan, just to stop you right there, yeah. what's some of their known music? Protect Your Neck and uh, 36 Chambers of Ch Shaolin. They took that directly from what was called Master Killer, but it was. Uh, Gordon Liu's movie, uh, The 36 Chambers of Shaolin. Like, that album is like one of the best hip-hop albums ever made, you know what I'm saying? Right. Uh, so anyway, I mean, we, we all know the music, and, and they a, a lot of what they did was sample in cuts from these old 70s uh, exploitation kung fu movies right. into the music. So anyway, right. what I was going to say was the Wachowskis 
hire Yin Wu Ping to do a lot of the fight choreography for the Matrix movie and the Matrix trilogies. And Yin Wu Ping came up with Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung in the Peking Opera that made them the, the incredible acrobats that they were. They wanted to have that authentic Hong Kong theater in the Matrix trilogy, so they hire the guy straight from there. You know what I'm saying? So right. that's important to know. And just as a side note, Keanu Reeves loves that culture loves yeah. those movies right. and so when he got this part he was like yes yes please please i'll do it <laughs> and he had just broken his neck on uh like i think in a motorcycle accident too right. beforehand so i remember because this is when i was in kung fu by myself you know before right. the mma broke big you know uh right. you, it was still the late 90s was still very much individual martial arts were the thing mm -hmm. at the time and i was like balls deep into chinese martial arts and i remember some of my friends saying well look at how stiff keanu is and all that stuff right. only to find out like a year or two later after the movie had come out that he had just gotten off of recovery from a broken neck right and that's why he's a little stiff in that but right you gotta give him some slack and but we got we got keanu and he saved us from having will smith in that part oh yeah that yeah that wouldn't have worked thank you keanu yeah <laughs> you know what i would do is i would walk right up to will smith and smack him in the face <laughs> Get out of this movie. You get yourself out of my kung fu movie. <laughs> That's what I would say, you fucking asshole. Cam, you can't slam. Don't let me get fooled on the man. Dodge this. So the Matrix and the Star Wars rely a lot on yeah. special effects in those. And it does. It does. It continues to bend and mold how movies rely yeah. on their special effects for their set pieces in their movies. Because Matrix, I mean, I'm a fan of those movies, and the big thing, well, the first three, and the big thing in those movies a lot of people come out of was, oh, wow, you know, the, in, the fight scene with the, where they're in the buildings and the shoot-up and, yeah. and the building and the helicopters and dodging bullets. and Well, the bullet oh, time thing was invented for that, and that, right. beco that becomes so trendy that it's in every action movie for the next right. 10 years, the whole right. bullet time shooting thing. Yep. By the time you get to the second movie and they have to, uh, Matrix 2, and they have to amp it up, um, right. it's becoming so fantastical, and, and the CG hasn't quite evolved yet enough, right. so that when all of those Agent Smiths are coming at Neo, it's very right. cartoony, and yeah, yeah. You, it starts to pull you out of the movie because it looks like animation. It doesn't look like right. live action. And, and just as a perfect component of what we're talking about, how the movies we talk about, they influence movies down the road. Like we said, 99 Star Wars prequels comes out with The Matrix. By the time we get to Matrix 2 in 2002, yeah. the guys who do the effects tell the Wachowskis, there's no way to do this fight scene like the way you're wanting to do it, and film it the way you wanted to do it but George Lucas had us create a complete digital character for right. his last Star Wars movie yeah. we can do that instead if you'd like right. and this is how it's going to look and they were like yeah go do it so that movie influences how that movie looks yeah right well, that's unfortunate, but right. because then we, you know, we start getting into like the Van Helsing kind of movies and all that stuff right. where it's no, so totally. CG heavy yep. that it looks more like a cartoon than a movie. You know right. what I mean? And anytime a, a human enters the frame, it's yeah. like, well, it looks fakey. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It stands out. Right. Or yeah. the mummy movies and all that stuff. Right. Well, we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. So 2000, Crouching Tiger hits. Now, right. this is a huge American hit. Right. It's a huge worldwide hit. Right. And it takes what we're talking about, Wire Foo. Right. And really brings it to attention of all moviegoers. Because this is not necessarily just like an action-y film. It's more of a drama no, with it's a, action in it. Right. 
Right. Yeah, it's a beautiful movie, and it's yeah, uh, beautiful. What's his name? By Ang Lee, who is a very artistic film director, right. and and uh, is all about shot composition and beauty and all that stuff. Yep. There's there's some amazing choreography in that oh, movie. Yeah. Not just the fight choreography, but the right. set design and all that stuff. Like you know, when uh, Chow Yun Fat and Michelle Yao are talking to each other about their unquieted love, and they're they're right. framed in this like cement. Uh, yep. uh, Thing kind of showing how they're trapped by their uh, circumstance, and outside is the beautiful wilderness, and you know right. what could have been their love and all that stuff. So right. there's a lot of message in within yeah. the it's shot depth. compositions. Yeah. It's beautiful, and then some yeah. of the, some amazing fucking fight choreography on the wires and all that stuff. And yeah, yeah. No, it's a great movie. It's a beautiful movie. It's really well done. I prefer out of these kind of films. I much prefer Hero. I yeah, love me Hero. too. I love Hero yeah. with Jet Li. Yeah, yeah that's yep. about the Emperor Shin and and guys yep. trying to assassinate him. Uh, yeah, that, that movie movie's fucking rad and badass. And yeah, everything, everything rolled into one. It's so yeah, it's amazing. kind of like, it's the same idea as Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but it's a little more. Yeah, uh, I think direct in its storytelling, sure. and the color work oh. is second to none. Oh God! Every uh, scene is like color or yep. influenced in, in the most beautiful way. Even the one with the raindrops, you know? Yeah. With the yeah. raindrop, they're CG raindrops, obviously, right. and they look CG, but it works so right. well in that scene. It's, yeah. Oh, it's a beautiful movie. Right. The whole movie is a set piece, and that's <laughs> one. That's one you have to watch it. You cannot yep. watch a dubbed version of that. No. You have to watch it with subtitles and because it'll take the art away from it yep. by not having it in whatever it is, Mandarin or Cantonese, I guess. It could be one of the two. I don't know. Yeah. Their voice delivering emotion that the dub does not deliver. So that negative effect we were talking about there, in 2000, we get Charlie's Angels, right. slow-mo, CG crap. Yeah. Gone in Gone 60, in 60 seconds. seconds. Yeah, where the this is where you start to see. I mean, and Bad Boys 2 has this too. I think where yeah, yeah. you all now you're starting to replace the car stunts. Yep. With CG cars, and right. you're like, uh, but you can tell all of a sudden the yep. car, the car turns into a cartoon. Yeah. Until it hits the ground, and then it's back and, to being a car again. <laughs> and at this time, the cars turn to this something too fluid and smooth about how yeah. the cars move. Right. That doesn't exactly. doesn't have the the gravity or jerking. Yes, to, uh, uh, that's what weight. it is. Is they're missing the gravity. The weight right. of the car is gone. So yep. there's like a too much like a fluid dynamic going on that doesn't feel realistic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. They've perfected it since, but yeah. in this time you're watching, especially right. I remember seeing Gone in 60 Seconds in the theater and being like, oh, that looks awful. Right. <laughs> and especially when you compare it to the original movie, which was 1,000% practical and made on right. a budget of like 500 bucks. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm exaggerating, but, you know, right. just a, a basically a homemade film. Yeah. And with ADR after the fact, all the lines yeah. are filled in later. The remake is basically they're just robbing the name and, yeah. and the, the car and that's it, right? Yeah. And then MI2, which is just an abortion of a film. Right. <laughs> you know, because my whole thing behind MI2, and like I say, I don't consider it in the, I'm a fan of those films, and I don't like that film. What I think I see is Tom Cruise wanting to embrace this kind of action movie and pull it, and put it here yeah. into this Mission Impossible thing. So he's doing a lot of wire foo. And, yeah. And it just completely 
feels out of place. Right. Like it never meshes with the with the world of the film that they're trying. It just it's it's bad. His main thing was he's just like I want to do if I'm gonna do an action movie I want to do it old school to where I want to do as much as I possibly can okay. and then push it a little further. Right. Right. <laughs> you know. Oh, here we go. Oh, one. Yeah. The original Fast and the Furious. And this is the one I've been alluding to all along that we're talking about where it starts getting bananas crazy. I live my life a quarter mile at a time. It starts off, it's basically a rehash of Point Break, the entire um, plot. Oh, yeah. Huh. Basically. I never even, yeah. Yeah. I saw this at a theater. Remember Justin? Yeah. Mini guy? Right. He mm-hmm. drugged me to this. Okay. I hated it. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, it's basically point break with a cop is trying to work his way into the uh, crew and all that stuff and ends right. up getting uh, kind of in love with the culture that they're doing, you know, instead right. of instead of surfing, it's street racing and all of that. Doesn't and he fall in love with And someone? he falls in love with it. Yeah. Well, it, the chick was, yeah, he falls in love with Vin's sister. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Which is um, part of the family. Mia, yeah. In, but the good thing about it is, is it reignites car culture in a in a in a, a really big way, which is big for me. That I give it credit for. The the movie's right. stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, whatever, it has tons of fans and. God bless I, it, right? And I think, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if this is your your cup of tea, you know, no harm, no foul. But the the thing is is I, if you look back on this one and I've only seen three of these films yeah out of the 20 that there are I think I've seen six okay I saw this one in the theater I've only seen it once yeah but there's, so, there's as, a lot of practical shit in these that's what I was alluding to yeah, that. I right. remember uh, glimpses of CG here and there but it seemed like everything was a little bit more grounded yeah as far I mean as for the most guy, part sure you, right right as I, car I guy, can sure start can breaking that down almost right. immediately right. Paul Walker shifts the car 62 times <laughs> as he's drag racing Vin Diesel and, and Ludacris in the first big drag race that right. car gets shifted so many times it doesn't make any fucking sense <laughs> and then at the at the end when uh, they're drag racing the you know he Vin is in his dad's old charger with the big supercharger Oh, yeah, yeah. And what's-his-name's in the Supra. And they do the drag race. As the drag race starts, he pulls a wheelie while peeling out, which is too... That's physics not working. You know what I mean? You either peel out or you... you the reason you would have a wheelie is because you have so much traction, the tires won't break loose. Right. That the car lifts up. You know what I mean? Right. But, right. Uh, yeah, on a street... That would never happen anyway. It would have to be a fully prepped track in order for the car to lift the wheels like that. It would really hard for it to do on the street. And also while the wheels are spinning. <laughs> right. It's physically impossible. It's ridiculous. Right. The How did this get made guys love these movies and they love talking about them and making fun of them. But they brought up something that I didn't even think about is once that race starts where they're drag racing and uh, they jump in front of the train at the last minute, you know, and Vin oh, yeah. ends up rolling the shit out of the charger. But right. it's the one and only time he's bleeding and he's hurt. <laughs> From here on out, he becomes in, an impenetrable, you know, Iron Man, basically. Yeah. yeah. 
No, so yeah, like like I say, these these movies never really did anything for me. I wasn't a fan of it, and I've only seen two more after this just because of my wife. Right. And, uh, you know, we still have trouble in our marriage. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and the, and that's funny. And the, uh, the, funny, the funny thing about the first handful of movies is they don't, because Vin Diesel's like, I'm not doing another one. Right. Uh, they don't know what the fuck to do with the rest of them. And, yeah, they keep retconning the living fuck out of these movies as they yeah. go on because everybody who dies comes back. That's because it's all about family. Family, yeah, I know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and there's there's going to be ten of these movies as, as, as yeah. we're done here, which is crazy. And each yep. one gets more and more insane. And then the the battle of egos that we hear about between The Rock right. and Vin Diesel hating each other. And I think by that point, it's all just, it's like, it's just a joke. And they know it's yeah. a joke. I think, yeah. They're, yeah. You know what I mean? Except yeah. for Vin Diesel. He probably thinks it's all, <laughs> whoa, killing it. So yeah, so then uh, the rest of the 2000s, based off of this, you got Triple X with Vin is back again as the super spy. Right. But he yeah. left that franchise too, and Ice Cube yeah. had to fill his spot for a minute. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because he's like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be a franchise sequel guy. And then now right. he's in the longest running franchise. And then Terminator, just in the 2000s, Terminator 456 happens. Yeah. Which I haven't seen any of those. <laughs> well, maybe I saw Salvation, but. Yeah, I think that's four. Yeah. That's the only... I haven't seen five and six. Transformers 1 through 6 has happened in the 2000s. Right. Pirates 1 through 5 has happened. Right. Mummy 2, 3, and the remake happened. With Tom Cruise, right? Tom Cruise. G.I. Joe 1 through 3 has happened. Right. Fast and the Furious, as we said, 1 through 10 (laughs) has happened. Yeah. And part of the thing was we were, uh, you know, we were joking about how uh, in if you going back to Airplane from 1980, <laughs> right? There's a joke in there where Sonny Bono's buying time bombs at the uh, <laughs> at the uh, 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 the concession stand, and there's a, a Rocky whatever it is. It's a Roman numeral of two X's, two V's, and three I's, right. <laughs> and it's right. really really old skinny little man, uh, you know. Right talking about you know, you know how the idea of even having a, th- a third movie in a trilogy like that you know what i mean right. uh, it, it, it right. was ridiculous at the time right. and now we're in movies where there's 10 of them and uh you know <laughs> we got you know the, the the mcu has like 23 movies in it and right. all that stuff and right. uh, you know no i know you know you take james bond out of the equation because you know many actors have played him over the, right however many years what now going on almost what 40 years 50 years yeah 50 years so well i'm 50 and it started long before right. me so close to 60, 60 years, years right so you, t- you know take that out of the equation the only thing that hits these kind of numbers in sequels is horror films like jason and freddy and, yeah. and michael Myers. Right. but yeah they just just you reading off that list and all those numbers behind all of those titles right it just kind of shows you where we've gone and what it also shows is a, a it's a lack of balls in uh, movie producing because they only want to put money behind a known entity you know what I mean and and they don't want to take risks on something no one's ever heard of before and so you kind of get a stifling of creativity and then all these talented people are working on shit you know some people can come they can shine through in these regurgitated properties here and there 
but it still would be nice if we could have that and right. you know some original content being made you know but well i mean not to continue to harp on the fast and the furious films but if we go back to something like i said like take the friday the 13th thing there's only yeah. so many ways you can make a Friday the 13th film with Jason Voorhees or like the right. Halloween film. You can only do so many things before it's just the same fucking movie over and over and over again. Right. And if you stray too far from that formula, you get something like Halloween 3, yeah. and no one likes that. <laughs> right, right. So with each one of these Terminators and Transformers and Pirates and Mummies and G.I. Joes that we've mentioned all through these years, the outrageous action that we would get to is that more money has been thrown at each of those sequels. Right. But I still, within talking to fans of those movies, like I'm not a fan of the Transformers movies or the Mummy movies right. or stuff like that, but a lot of the fans that I have come across and talked to and stuff like that, I work with some of the people who like the Transformers movies, they like the earlier films more than the later films right. because the, right. in their because words they, they go off the rails as they go well, exactly yeah. and so right. that's those things that you know i i saw the first two transformers movies i can't remember any of the set pieces in it no all right so let's get down to our wind down questions is cgi the problem i think for a while it was right I think it was because it became easy, cheap, cheaper, and less risk. Right. And they thought that it looked good enough that it could pass for real. But I feel like, uh, you know, when J.J. Abrams uh, took over, did the Star Wars thing and all that stuff and started to do what George Lucas had done in the prequels, right. you know, brought back, you know, doing half practical, half CG, and it added a gravitas right. to the film. With real backgrounds. And right. I think everybody started to say, hey, look at that. Yeah. yeah I, we didn't realize we were missing that until he made that happen. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, and also I think too, we've talked about this a bunch in the past. I think you got to credit Greg Nicotaro yeah. and The Walking Dead for sticking as much practical as possible oh, in yeah. that series and uh, showing and keeping the art form alive. Yeah. You know, just influencing the zeitgeist, I guess, right. you know. Yeah, so I think, yes, CG is the problem and it was the problem, but the pendulum is swinging back the other way. Right. Yeah, I think that, I agree with you that it was a problem and then now there's starting to be smart enough filmmakers out there that can say let's use this as a tool not as a band-aid and right and, right and um the problem also the cg evolution has gotten crazy yep. in the last couple years yep. so i think i, I you know I, I definitely won't disparage cg because i there's so much stuff that i love yeah that has cg work in it and right the stuff that i i usually can point to that i love so much especially movies that use it it's stuff like like Fincher uses it in some of the most beautiful ways to where yeah. you're like, is that CG or is it? I, right. I wouldn't have guessed that was CG kind of thing. Right. I love it when it's it's used like that, or when yeah. it's used with something as amazing as like a performance that James Brolin was able to give with Thanos. It's like that right, is amazing. Right. I guess you know the the problem is is when you're using it as a crutch for the film and you think that that's going to be right. what's going to get your story to the end okay so then next question is sequel the problem yes and that goes back <laughs> to the point i just made that executives only want to spend money on 
known IP and stuff that's proven to make money already. Even sometimes stuff that isn't, because they're rehashing shit that wasn't even that popular back right. in the day now. No, for sure. So that's why companies like A24 and Blumhouse, right. even though they're very genre-oriented, they're, they're the only ones that are pushing any envelope of creativity at all. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, no, for sure. So, yes, sequels are the problem. Right. You know, uh, uh, there has to be some fresh ideas out there. I know it's got to get be getting hard to do. Oh, yeah. But there's so much more failed shit nowadays that you could take some of that failed shit <laughs> and maybe repurpose it so that in a way that no one's ever seen it before. Right. Because no one ever saw it back then either, you know. And I'm talking about, like, in the last 20 years where everything's oversaturated anyway. Oh, yeah. You know. Right. No, for sure. And yeah, I, th I think it's a big problem too, especially, you know, it, it creates this fear factor in the, uh, in the movie companies that I think it causes them to solely rely only on Marvel movies and DC movies right. and Fast and the Furious and Transformers yeah. and stuff. You know, that, that's the way they can get back on top right. with something like that. I mean, you, you take a a studio like Paramount which was really down in the dumps they lost their big mm -hmm. wig like their Transformers they're trying to get that back on its feet but that had them on top for a long time right. and then they hit a really rough patch where they were, they had a string of bombs they were almost had to file bankruptcy and then they put a gambling win on a sequel which was Top Gun and it made right. them you know two billion dollars right and the whole point of the movie was to bring people back to the right. theaters after COVID when they thought this was going to be the nail in the coffin for theaters, right? They were begging Tom Cruise to, list this, to let, let it, it earlier. Yeah, let us just yeah. release it digitally. And he was like, nope. Yeah, you got to give him credit for that. That's for fucking sure. Yeah. And, so, but, and I would have never called it on that. I would have thought if mm -hmm. any sequel was going to save them, it definitely wouldn't be a top, you know, the Top Gun sequel. Right, right. And I, you know, I... It hit, I don't know how, I really don't know how. I liked it, I thought it was an okay movie, but I, I don't know how it hit all the demographics it did. Young people and old, you know, I get the old people. Yeah. I get the old people. Right, because of the nostalgia, right. right. I think it was just, the timing was right. Yeah. Tom Cruise called it because we were so starved for getting out of the house. Right. You know what yeah. I mean? So he called it. And, and, and if you're going to go out of the house, you have to make it something visually right spectacular in a realistic way right. and not a because if that had been all cg planes who cares right. that movie would have tanked right before covid streaming is starting to take over anyway yep. and because it's taking over all the intellectual stuff is ending up on tv yep and nobody wants to go to the theater for that anyway right. leaving spectacle purely for theater yep. right yep so that's the other reason why I think a lot of these movies are kind of dominating the topic because it's the only thing that people go to the theater for anymore. Right. Is is these big spectacle CG action, outrageous action films. And, you know, unlike you and me, I think there's a lot of people who just... This is something I've never been able to really do, but just to unplug their brain to watch a movie. Oh, no, for sure. And just be purely entertained, and I'm not that individual. Right. I watch TV as a tool to focus my attention deficit disorder. <laughs> so, because my brain never shuts off. Right. My brain never shuts off. So, 
the only way I can focus my brain is by watching TV. So I'm working when I'm watching right. television or, or when I go to the theater. It's dissecting. It's constantly. like a it's a, a, a hobby, a passion of, of working in a way. Right. It's something I love to do, whereas I don't relate to the people that go, I just want to check out and, and have fun with it. Right. And I don't care if it's stupid. I, that doesn't work for me. Right. So that's why these kind of films don't work for me. Maybe that helps better explain why I think... You, I, I feel you're similar yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah, no. And I, I hope this explains why we are critical of the movies we talk about when we're critical. Oh, yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, you, know, you know, yeah, no. not just picking on them because we think they're dumb. Right. It's just they're dumb on purpose, right. and I, can't, I don't enjoy yeah, that. I can't get to that level. Even though, right. like, I'll wholeheartedly admit, you know, some of these comic book movies that I love and adore, I, you do have to kind of yeah. suspend your, you know your disbelief yeah. or lower your IQ to have some fun with it right. and stuff. And I do that with those. I, do, I don't know why I can with those. Maybe because I have a connection. Because of your nostalgia with the comic, comic books. books. Right. Exactly. it. Because you and I are the same in everything else. Right. In, our, in our movie. Few, and I cannot do that what you right. do. I do not like them. Right. I do, I, those movies annoy me. Right. Let me ask you. this. Oh, yeah. You asked me. No. What would make some of these films <laughs> that we find to be lesser than, right. what would make them better? Right. Um... Uh, writing, yeah, right. I say <laughs> writing, story, concentrate on that, and let your. I don't mind the extravaganza, as long as I have a cool story to get me to that event. Right. I'm give me extravaganza. Yeah, I would say yeah. It's writing and it's uh, yeah, not designing a movie around a set piece unless you can do that with good writing right and 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 make it flow well i'll, I'll take a uh, I, I and some people call it a guilty pleasure man and i can totally see that because it is the same movie over and over and over again i fucking love the john wick john movies. wick yeah and uh the things that they do in that movie even though it is the same movie over and over and over again is what they do is they evolve the lure and history behind right what he's working for right and what he's going after in each film gets bigger and bigger and the scope yeah. gets bigger so you learn more more chips are put onto the table and you, more cards right. revealed of the hands of other people so it's like an uh, an evolving world that keeps branching right. out opening and opening now yeah on top of that I'll give it to you it's the same fucking movie and over and over and over again but I enjoy it yeah. and they manage with each of the set pieces they bring to those movies to amp it to where it's not Oh, okay, now it's the, you know Tim for me. Yeah, it's not like Vin Diesel hanging off of right. an airplane and and running up the side of a falling <laughs> bridge or whatever the fuck we were talking <laughs> right. about with Bruce Willis. Right. You know. Yeah. So that's one of those things that if you can do a Fast and the Furious movie, even though I'm not a fan of that, but if you can do one of those where story from A to B to C gets you through all of those set pieces that you did, but the three chances that I've given it. Those that yeah. franchise has not done that right. for me as of yet. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, and and again, I think continuing the evolution of using CG to enhance practical, yeah. rather than using CG to uh, replace practical. Right. Yeah. Right. I think that's the other big part of the picture there. We're looking at you, the thing too. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> People keep asking if I'm back, and I haven't really had an answer. But now, yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. All right, then. I think we got we nailed it. Yeah, this is really fucking long. Yeah. <laughs> 
we bid you adieu, and uh, we hope you enjoyed this uh, very special episode yeah. of uh, Different Strokes, where the kid gets molested in the bike shop. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Oh, my gosh. Call Mr. Drummond and Mr. T. Yeah. <laughs> I pity the fool who touched this little kid. <laughs> we'll see you in the next go-around. Yay. Hit that button, Tim. Okay, ready? We are in our transmission.